0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Got a really exciting one for you. Right now, I am sitting up in North Carolina at a past guest house, which, oh, wait, hey, Adam, appreciate you letting me stay over here for tonight. Anytime. <laughs> which, uh, we'll kind of do introductions, because this will be a really fun episode. So, real quick, uh, Adam, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself, and then we'll kind of go around the room, kind of who's all sitting here with us. Uh,
3: Adam Jolly. Uh, previous of uh, maybe some of the guys have seen us on Budget Back Bucks Outdoors on YouTube. We used to have a, a YouTube channel. But just a 43-year-old wannabe scrub hunter from Taylorsville, North Carolina.
0: Uh, you got to give yourself a little more props to that, especially you, Keith. <laughs> Come on now. Y'all, y'all kill some big deer, uh, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But next, lucky. you got TJ?
1: Yeah, TJ Sweet. Um, just a North Carolina public land hunter. That's pretty much it. Just a w- basically a weekend warrior. Take a week off every year. Absolutely. Try to get after it.
0: Been there. Done that a lot. So, it totally relate with that.
2: Heath? Oh, I'm Heath Jolly. Uh, me and Adam are twins. Uh We kind of got into public land hunting uh, my first year back into hunting when I was in college. We've been back at it about 20 years or so. We started making DVDs, National Forest Hunting DVDs, back when, before there was YouTube or whatever. And we did that for a while, and uh, we still try to get at it on public land as much as we can, but we don't film as much as we
0: used to, but, you know. We still have a lot of fun out there. By the way, real quick about the DVDs. I didn't even. Yeah. I, I didn't look at it upstairs. I was going to grab it, but I had them all hands full. Did, did y'all name the DVDs "Budget Buck" or what did y'all? What was the name on the DVDs? Just yeah, for li- listeners because again, a lot of listeners are going to hear this. So like maybe they already own a DVD. I don't know.
3: Right. Vo- volume one and uh, and. Get this volume too. It was <laughs> yeah. We put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Budget, buck budget bucks, yeah, budget budget yeah. bucks. Yeah, budget bucks. Yeah.
0: So that's awesome. All about public land yeah. hunting. So because real quick, and then we're gonna get more into the weeds. How long had y'all been filming? Like when did y'all start filming?
2: Mm, two, we got the idea in two thousand eight. Actually, my father was. Uh, we were up uh, in the mountains. We used to work together, and uh, we were building some houses, and we were uh, there was no power there, and uh, we were staying in a camper, run generator, and we were watching the old DVDs. And uh, my dad, just uh, he he cut the TV off one night and was like, "Listen, I, I'm I'm done with all these DVDs. You can have them if you want." He said, "This is can't find anything like what we do, mm-hmm. you know." And that just kind of put off a light bulb in my head. I was like, "You know what? I'm gonna buy a camera, Dad, and I'm gonna start filming. I'm gonna make me a National Forest Time DVD." And he looked he kind of laughed at me. And sure enough, it took me three years to make the first one, you know. So then we we bought a camera and finally started filming in 2009, and it was 2011 by the time we finished. Our amateur DVD, the first one. So and it took us another two years to make the second one. So
0: well, there's a lot there. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about the film. And then we can kind of get a little more specific on like topics for this episode. Um, when y'all first started filming, and, and Adam, I could probably ask you this. Back then, again, there wasn't really anybody doing, especially like filming the public aspect. And then y'all coming from North Carolina, is like, you know, that wasn't a thing. Like just nobody. I mean, were people first of all when y'all were carrying cameras around, like, dude, y'all are crazy for Wanting to do this? I yeah, mean, absolutely. I think everybody thought we were crazy. Yeah, especially our <laughs> father. <laughs> oh, why well. He
2: knew how hard it was. So he was like, why are you going to add that extra uh, hardness into the mix? You know? Yeah,
3: it was not as easy. Uh, it definitely, uh, it wasn't easy as we thought it would be, uh, especially at first. We we had limited financial resources. So we had some, some cheap gear and heavy camera arms and trying to go in the same distances that we were doing before. Because some of these public lands we hunted, you know. Uh, that was one spot we hunted that was three and a half miles over mountains. Every day we'd go in three and a half miles and three and a half out. Mm-hmm. And it got a lot tougher once you added all that camera gear. Yeah. Especially when,
0: the, back when, you know, camera gear, camera gear has come a long ways, especially in this mm-hmm. last, I mean, five to 10 years for sure. But it's like, it came such a long ways, cameras getting smaller, more compact, better lenses, better quality. And it's like, now it's like the golden age of getting into filming. Because I mean, we were talking about earlier before we hopped on here, it's like, you know, and you get one of those like galaxy, you know, s21 s22 camp cell phones that have like unbelievable cameras like dude, you film you know pretty much whole videos especially if you're not hunting fields you're hunting inside of timber with like one of these phones shooting 4k and then be able to you know crop in later in post uh, post production so it's like you have a lot of cool things happening now that back then y'all weren't we were all shooting what were y'all shooting on uh was it sd cards or did y'all were y'all using uh not tapes but uh the disc what it, kind of cameras were we on? They had this? an
2: internal hard drive on that, on that model. That's
3: right. Sony. It was a Sony and yep. it had, an it had an internal hard internal drive. Hard drive. Oh, so you had to
0: plug it to the computer and then pull everything off that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Yep.
3: Yeah. But the very first video he made was one, one that had what, what was it called? A mini DV tape. They were maybe three oh, inches yes. wide. Yes, on dad's it, it was like a little cassette. like you know.
0: Yeah, Oh, yeah. That, that's what I was talking yeah. about. I had another buddy of mine, and that's when he started filming. It was with the little tiny little cassette tapes. He's like, man, you did all this footage. He learned how to cut footage and all that kind of stuff and do so many different things. And it's like, then you came out, you know, had the CDs. And then you like, he had one as like, little, little CDs and you had the SD cards and everything else. How everything's changed is crazy. Um, again, made it very easy for people. And now now you have these huge SD cards. Shoot 4K, which you got to have you're shooting 4K. I learned that out very quickly. Back when we first got our first 4K camera. Um, But that's kind of cool because I think the idea, not to make, we're not going to make this whole episode about cell phone, but be able to share that footage with people, not even to put it on YouTube or anything like that. But like like we talked about early, Adam, like it's so cool if you can film that kill, you know, get that kill shot or just a hit of the deer and I can go back and review, especially like, you know, talking to Archery and I'm like, okay, how good was that hit? I pull up on the TV, whatever. Like, what what are we talking here? Especially if you're kind of iffy on what happened, the reaction of the deer and all that kind of stuff. So much stuff goes through your head. You're like, well, did i hit him good i don't know like his tail tucked when he ran off i've <laughs> fucking smoked him and you look at the footage like oh man that's like eight nine inches farther back than what i thought it was Oh, well, i can't tell you how many times we've taken a shot in the
2: woods and then we've been looking at that tiny little screen trying to figure out what went wrong and we think something went wrong and said that on camera and then go back to the house later and figure out it was it's totally different yeah than hook it up, up to the big over, screen yeah and you're like oh okay well i i totally messed that up in the woods man i you know i Say, oh, yeah, I think I hit a little forward there. But when in reality, the deer duck, you mm. know, and hit it through the back straps. So,
0: yeah, we had one that we, we put the video up on YouTube, but we had to edit some stuff out. Just the shot, what happened with the shot. So we had, anyways, had to cut some footage, but it was one of those, like, I thought I missed underneath this doe. She was, anyways, it, she was facing away from me. And I didn't miss underneath her. And it just kind of like this unzipped. It was bad. But it was again, we, we cut that footage when so it's kind of, you know, cut between scenes there. But it's like one of those things I thought we missed. And then we get down because we had the whole thing on sh- on camera. We get down, it was on our feed tree. We walk over there and I'm like, oh, did not miss. Arrow and everything on the ground. And now we didn't miss at all. And we backed out, came back later and gathered. But, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> so y'all been filming for a long time. Heath, you're still carrying around a camera, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I make it to like the first week
2: of muzzleloader in virginia and then my back st- i've got three bad discs and my back starts giving out on me and i'll, I'll put the camera gear up so this year i filmed to like the first week in november and then i was done after that i backpacked a deer out it was three and a half miles back but i had to go back in there twice mm-hmm. you know to get the deer out mm-hmm. by myself and uh it was 14 miles that day and after that the camera did not go back in the woods with me uh after that So, so. i want
0: to talk about y'all's background a little bit because we're talking you know we're in north carolina here but y'all's kind of Growing up, especially like after college and everything, has been like the mountains, like North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Also, we're talking about Virginia here. You know, what kind of is that background? And one of y'all can take it away because Adam, first time we had you all we talked a little bit about, but now we got both of y'all on here. When it came to getting into that public land and y'all start transitioning hunting other states, because now y'all hunt, I know Heath, you hunt a few different states every single year. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, what was that transition like? You started hunting here and then you're like, oh, well, let's just jump across the state line to Virginia.
3: Yeah. Well, we'll take that
0: one. Yeah, yeah. That's, well, the
3: the first time. So we, we grew up hunting uh, deer hunting with dogs in Mm -hmm. Virginia and we didn't know anything about the type of hunting that we do today. Uh, but our dad lost the lease when I think I was like 23 or something. Yeah. It was my Um, last year in college. Right. I'm four or twenty I'm 43 now. So 21 years ago. And, uh, my dad had hunted in the seventies on some game land uh, an hour from our house. And he was kind of disappointed that he lost that hunting land. So he said, let's, let's go up here and just try one day. I think I remember how to get back in there. (laughs) (laughs) So we go in with these <laughs> crappy flashlights and we get lost and almost go off a cliff on our hands and knees. And we finally, in the dark, because we went in way early,
0: mm-hmm.
3: we sit down and I just grabbed dad and I'm like, no, we're just sitting here till daylight, <laughs> right? We're not falling off a cliff today. Yep. So after daylight, we crawl on our hands and knees out of this rhododendron thicket. Anybody that's been through one of those knows what it's like. And we come out on a logging road lost as can be no gps no cell phones no map yep just dad's memory from 1970 (laughs) so we walk up to the top of this mountain dad kind of gets his bearings he sets on one side of the hill i sit on the other and right before dark i shot a nice eight point Mm -hmm. i'd never even seen a deer like that before on private land um and it just kind of had me hooked it took us forever to get that thing out of there that night but uh and that was a really really steep uh, game land. So it was mountainous where we live here is, is rolling hills, but it's not mountainous. And I guess that was my first experience. So we just kind of kept going that way. I took Keith the next year. He killed a nine pointer the first day in the same area. Yeah. So maybe and, I'll go into that a second. This is
2: what hooked me on the mountains you're
3: talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, what it's like of mountains. all
0: places, like, yes. Oh, let's
2: go hunt the mountains. Yeah. So Adam takes me back in there. And for a year I'd been, I'd been looking at that buck he killed, you know, and at, at this point he's got me topped, you know? and we're twins. This to mm-hmm. be a bad thing. Uh, so he takes me back in there and I go in in the dark, you know, and never been in there before. I didn't get to see what it looked like in the daylight, you know, until the sun come up down there. But as the sun's coming up, we've got in there and Adam walks off down the hill about 200 yards from where he sat me down. And, uh, I'm putting my clothes on, you know, cause, uh, we just walking in in a t-shirt and even though it's 20 degrees, it's. T-shirt and thin pants mm-hmm. walking in there with your backpack on or you're sweating too hard. I'm uh, I'm sitting there and I'm putting my, my thermals on. And a buck walks up behind me. I'm watching this beautiful sunrise come up from the top of a mountain, you know, and I'm just really enjoying it and putting my thermals on. All of a sudden, I hear something coming up behind me. I turn around. There's a big ten-pointer standing behind me, looking at me, and I'm basically mooning him. Like I haven't even got my thermals up around my butt yet. You know, I'm pulling <laughs> them up from my knees to my thighs. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I hear something, and I turn around, and this buck's looking at me, and he stomps. He goes, and he takes off running. You know, and that was my first experience on public land with this beautiful, with the sun coming up. You know, and then the f- biggest deer I've ever seen in my life catches mm-hmm. me mooning him. You know, and I then think the, if I remember correctly, I think you put a drag rag around your yes, butt. Yes, I did. And that's why and that that's why he followed came in you there. in. Never used a drag rag since. He thought, <laughs> uh, it brought him in that morning, just a little too early. I wasn't yeah. ready for him. But He, he didn't uh, see the tail he was expecting, uh, <laughs> and I was I was very upset. I'd ruined my one lifetime chance at a big deer in my oh. mind. You know, that's uh, that's what I was thinking. You know, and I was. I was mad I, I i changed into my gear you know and i sat down next to a log and i had a uh, my dad had let me borrow a doblee, one of those cans mm-hmm. and i'm next to a laurel thicket laurel thicket about 75 yards away and i think that's why adam put me there in between two laurel thickets and uh I, I sat down and i don't know why i just i hit that can i didn't expect anything to come out of it and about a minute later here comes a probably the oldest deer ever killed in my life a nine pointer he had some broken off tines Mm -hmm. i guess you know they an older deer might have like frail tines Mm -hmm. like an old person has frail bones whatever but he's a lot of broken tines but he comes running out and i shoot him and my brother comes walking back up to me adam comes up walking up the hill about 10 15 minutes later he's like were you shooting over me i was like what are you talking about he was like i was sitting there staring face to face with the 10 pointer and you shot. I thought you were shooting at the deer. I thought you could see the deer that I was shooting at. So that morning it hit me right then. I was like, okay, I'd never even seen a good buck in the woods mm-hmm. before hunting private land. And here within 200 yards on the same morning in the middle of nowhere in these mountains, we had three shooter bucks within 200 yards, you know? So that, that impressed me right there. And plus just the whole experience with the sun coming up on top of the mountain. I was hooked. I hadn't hunted flatland since, you know?
0: Well, I'll say this. Uh, first off, y'all are way better shape than me. I'm gonna let you know that that right now. I was, I was joking about earlier. Andrew gets on to me about noses. I'm like, that's what happens when you're fat. You know, <laughs> you know, you, you know, you don't you don't breathe the breath. And you have me up on one of those mountains. Like we go up to Virginia, which we'll talk about a little bit later. They did. You know, at I, the. I we got to drop some weight because that'll be, oh, man. I'll, yeah, I'll die halfway at the side of one of those hills on, on those secondary ridges. Yeah, like you need to turkey ridge. hunt up there. Yeah, You'll Woo, drop a, a half pound a day turkey
2: <laughs> hunting up there.
0: Like, all, all right, yeah. Devin Duncan, you hear, you, you listen to the podcast. I know you're listening right now. Listen, you got, we got to go turkey hunting. <laughs> <laughs> He's the man to contact for yeah. that. but uh, no, So that was kind of y'all's first experience. And, of course, kind of that transition to y'all kind of starting to hunt more and more on public and kind of focusing more on that. But one thing, Adam, we've talked about before is, the opportunity, and, and really, Heath, you mentioned it too, like the opportunity up there, when he start, first started hunting public back then, like you were seeing better quality bucks than what you had locally on, you know, kind of your more, not, not even easier access, whether it's public land close by, or just privately. And like, you're just seeing better quality bucks up there, but you had to work for them. hmm
2: And we weren't seeing any people, which is, you know, makes sense. Seeing good bucks where you weren't seeing any people, whereas on the private land we were hunting people everywhere there's deer were smelling them constantly.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, a lot more pressured.
3: In North Carolina baiting's still legal and like 90% of our friends maybe even higher than that. They they're so used to to buying the bait, setting up a ladder stand like they they couldn't comprehend that we were going and walking this far in this steep land with no bait, just just sitting down in the woods somewhere and killing decent deer like we I don't think they could
2: comprehend it or understand
3: it.
0: mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
2: Like to me, sometimes I think of it as adventure hunting is what I like to do instead of just mountain hunting. I I like to find new areas and then go in there and get to see what it looks like. And I usually have to kill something in that area before I ever quit hunting it. And then I'm ready to move on to a different area. You only got so much life to live, right? You don't want to, man don't want to see the same thing over and over and over. And I'm one of those people that can't really sit still. Like I, I got I know people that will that can sit for a week straight in the mm-hmm. same spot in the mountains, you know where it's a, a low population of uh, deer density and and you know they'll finally kill that good buck after a week and and it, me I can't hardly do that. I got to see something different. I got to keep going and and look for for fresher sign and 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 get on and and see different deer. In different places and that that's what keeps me going i i think i would just get too bored hunting the same areas over and over you know
0: which that's interesting you bring that up because it, not every other but a lot of the other mountain hunters i've talked to mm-hmm. are seems to be opposite like they're just like the super patient guys and you know, guys i even hunt the appalachian mountains but i think rusty johnson out in ozark mountains of Na- of uh, arkansas too <laughs> find that one spot perfect especially talking the rut funnel here or even getting to like later pre-rut and i mean sitting there six, seven, eight, ten days in a row to finally Mm -hmm. kill that deer, which I don't have the patience for either. But it's interesting, you're not, you're not necessarily doing that at all. And you're still having success, you know, kind of consistent success killing really good deer up there. Where it seems like from all the other guys I've talked to hunting that kind of mountains, it's like, oh no, you got to find that one funnel and you got to find that super tight funnel, whatever it is, Rusty Johnson hunts tops of freaking steep creek drainages or, or drainages come off the side of the mountain. Um, you know, you got other guys like Devin Duncan, his dad, that kind of had their kind of, you know, they're kind of like bluff gaps and stuff, or like their bluff lines they like to hunt, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and then, you know, we've got other guys like Jim Forbes, who's from Virginia as well, and very much find transition lines up on the mountains and just sitting there throughout the whole muzzler season. <coughs> and then finally one big buck comes by and you get a split second to make a shot, and that was it. So you're not like that, which is interesting. Now, okay, yeah. now I've kind of figured out a new topic for this podcast, at least for this but this might be a part two, and there might be a part one, part two series of this because there's a lot to talk about. That is super interesting. Again, staying mobile and and not sitting one spot just because it's the best thing you found, but kind of you know moving around and bit staying mobile. Right. I like when I'm thinking about going into a season.
2: When I think about like rut hunting, I usually have about ten spots in my mind or areas that I want that I want to see that season that I want to sit a day or two. And I just I go until I feel like I've burned it out, and and yeah, yes, could I sit there longer, and kill a deer? Yeah, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, but I see less and less deer every time I sit. You know, most of the time there's never a perfect way to go in. So at night they're smelling where you've been through there. I think I'm blindside a lot of bucks. You know, they're they're I by the time they know I'm there, you know, it's it's, I see them the first time I've hunted or the second time I've been in there, and then I'm gone for a year, Mm -hmm. and if nobody else is coming in there. It is an ambush you know uh you know most of the does don't know i'm there you know whereas if you sit the same place seven days in a row most of the does that are hanging out in their area already know you're there mm-hmm. you know and yeah a buck might not come through there but every five six seven days you know in a big circle or whatever you know checking his route but you know the does at least know you're there within mm-hmm. two to three days if whatever de- doe it- groups are living in that area
0: if you, know? you deter the does from coming through that area like they've naturally been doing then you might not have those bucks come by, right. or the bucks are like, "Hey, there's something weird. Like, for some reason, I'm not, you know, for whatever he's not cutting sign going through this one area. Might put him on more alert. Like, there's something going on again, mm-hmm. because it's kind of interesting. I've not made too much analogies with the dogs, but uh, there's a lot of interesting things with the dogs, things they pick up on, and it's like a deer. You know, people don't, I don't think give deer enough credit in some situations, and I think people give deer too much credit in other situations. But especially with that, and their intuition, there's got to be something in there that again, if you're hitting it sitting there multiple times. Like you said, those are going to know. They're going to find out very quickly, especially getting in and out of the state. You're sitting all day. Yeah. At night, they're cutting tracks. They're cutting, figuring out where exactly you've been coming through there.
2: And I hate to even say this on air, but uh, (laughs) one of my favorite things is finding hiking trails. That if I'm going to want to hunt a place over and over again, I find a place that's got hiking trails where people normally hike a Mm -hmm. lot and you can hunt that kind of place over and over again. It doesn't, you know, as long as you don't get too far off the trail it doesn't matter how many times that those have smelled you don't you can hunt it repeatedly because they're used to people coming through there all the time and that that is right up until the point they get a bullet right
3: <laughs>
0: or <an> arrow, <laughs> right. or,
2: or a muzzle yeah. set. yeah all of it so with that said <laughs> last year i was yeah. hunting a spot off a main hiking trail i was uh i was three miles in that was a long walk walking there but there was a four-pointer on the top of the main ridge now i'm hunting off the downwind side of the main ridge, on the, ri- the side that's got the most concealment, there's a couple laurel and rhododendron thickets on that side of the ridge. And on the other side, the woods are kind of open. Mm-hmm. And on the other one side, it's it goes a long way, all the way to the bottom of the mountain before it hits private and there's fields. On the other side, the less, uh, on the more open side, it only goes 200 yards down and you're hitting fields. Mm-hmm. So the bucks are not traveling that side. Mm -hmm. They're traveling the downwind side that's got all the thickets on it and got more public before you reach the private. But I was watching a four pointer on the hiking trail and there were some acorns up there and he's eating on them and here comes a hiker. And what I've noticed about most hikers is they're really not seeing a whole lot of the woods. They're just walking as fast as they can go. Well, the, the deer are used to seeing that over and over again. This deer stepped five feet, maybe 10 off the trail. Kind of behind a big tree, and this was a young buck, you know. And w- let this hiker walk by, and then he stepped right back out on the trail and started eating again. That hiker didn't bother him at all. He saw hikers every day, and that was a young deer, and he knew that that hiker wasn't a threat, mm-hmm. you know. So those spots like that, I feel like if I'm if I find a good spot like that, I can hunt it over and over again. Otherwise, I won't hunt it more than two days in a row, you know. It,
0: and it also brings up one thing, and I've heard other guys talk about this when like going into an area. Some I, I've heard some guys and interviewed plenty of people like it's all about stealth and being quiet going through. But I know other guys is like if you got to cover a long distance like it's not a it's not a bad thing about making noise and acting like you are a hiker especially mm-hmm. if it's an area that's been hiked or that you know you had the activities just because they're used to have somebody walking through at a pretty quick pace and right. like if as long as you don't make eye contact with that yeah. deer they just stand there. And I've seen that plenty of times <laughs> okay. too. And same thing on main road yeah. systems. Like you walk down a road, as long as you're walking at a pretty good pace, it's like they do just stand there. Like, oh, they can't see you even though they're like in the wide open. They just think for some reason they just, you know, they can't be seen. And uh, that's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Again, Finding some of those spots yeah. that, hey, these deer are super comfortable and that gives you better access to get into an area. Because most people are like, man, I'm not going to go hunt anywhere near a hiking trail. I'm going to get <laughs> off in the, the deep and darkest little hole. And that's when the deer are like, probably most worried because like they're not mm-hmm. used to having a lot of people walk in there. They smell you one time, they're gone mm-hmm. and not coming back. But
2: well with that said, we killed a buck this year off a hiking trail and we had just stopped. Uh, no, I'd been hunting. I'd killed a buck the day before, a nine pointer. It was three and a half miles back and adam comes in he's got the next two days off he comes up and we're halfway back into that spot and we're on a main hiking trail and there's a lot of other hunters that that hunt in there we run into another hunter and he's he's coming out from back in there and he has just walked by the buck we're fixing to kill the buck is bedded 30 yards above the hiking trail in the wide open woods by the way on a little logging road that you couldn't see from the hiking trail and he's watching everybody come by. And he had just watched because this guy was by himself and walking and not stopping and really looking around. He walked right by and that buck stayed bedded and let him go by. Well, we talked to him about 300 yards probably from where we we killed the deer. And then we parted ways and we walked towards the deer. Well, this guy just come by the deer and the deer stayed there and laid bedded because he knew the guy wasn't a threat. Well, I had a camera way up on the top of the ridge above where this deer was. And I stopped Adam because he'd never been in the area before. And I pointed up at that deer, but I was pointing above him, you know, Mm -hmm. and telling Adam, I was like, we got to go up there and get this camera later on. I don't use cameras much on public land, but it was one of the only cameras I had out in Virginia. I had two out in the whole state and it was one of them, but we stopped and we're looking at each other and then looking uphill at that deer. And when we did that, he just stood up. We didn't know we were looking right at him. Didn't know he was sitting there. He stood up and Adam threw up and shot him. And, uh, you know, he had let how many hikers walk by him that day mm-hmm. Yeah. and he, he was bedding he was, there. It was one of those few scenarios where the buck was bedding there all the time. It was one of those beds that was a wore out. He was staying in the same place all the time. He felt safe there. It stunk.
0: You know, five yards away. Yeah. It was black. So I found a place not to get where I want to really dive into this like specific topic here, but because I want to talk more about kind of the, the mountain country versus like hill country or flatlands, but talking about like smelling it where the deer's like been in the air for so long i got two scenarios where i've like you could smell a deer from a distance you get up there and you find that bed right one was up in it's in ohio southern ohio i was up there scouting for turkeys actually it was turkey season i had to go bought my license everything like a th- three-day license whatever whatever short license you could buy pretty much went up there turkey hunting. really scouting and i found this one buck he was off a major road system not to give too many details on a very very steep face And I was going up, it was right up against some private, I was on the very top of the ridge. I got up there and it was super steep. No, for hill country guys, super steep. For you guys, like, oh man, this is, it's a cakewalk, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in the mountains, but really steep. And there was a little bench. And right when you hit that bench, it's like a big flat. There was a bunch of white oaks and some red oaks in there. And the thermals had started to drop. It was late in the afternoon. And I could see up to the property line at the very top of the ridge where it's open. And I could tell like there's something playing up there, some kind of, you know, some kind of ag. And, um, I, right, then the thermals started dropping, and I could smell, I'm talking like stink, I'm talking like buck urine, like tarsal glands, but not even tarsal, just like buck urine, I'm like, dude, I'm like, there's gotta be a deer, and it's like, you know, it's April, like late April when I'm up there, and I'm like, there's gotta be a buck bed up here, and I just kept going up, and there was this one, it was like a bowl, it was like you came up above that bench, it was a little bit more steeper, and then it was like a big kind of like a, almost like a bowl in this, it wasn't like a, a drainage, like a, a defined drainage. It was like a big, wide kind of bowl. And there was one little thick spot in the right in the middle. Everything else was open woods. And it was like, you know, they had like cane in there and a couple fallen trees. And I start pushing through that stuff and I I can just smell it, pungent. I pop out. You know, there's a bed, half the size of that rug right there. That, you know, it's in this room, nobody can see it. But, you know, four foot by four foot bed right there. And you can see rubs, everything shredded in there from like the previous season, you know, kind of older rubs. And you could just smell and you could see the tracks. I'm like, this is a freaking big deer. And he's way up on the steep face, up above a huge road system. Small little piece of public, not a big chunk at all. Like again, kind of overlooked to be hard to deer hunt it with the wind. You'd have to time the thermals right. But he's bedded where he could go just up and over the top, like sixty yards above him is that private. And I went up there and there's there's cornfield up there, like small cornfield. They had food, they had uh you can bait up I think they had yeah, they had a bait station up there and a couple other things right up over the lip, sixty yards, eighty yards from. Him. And I'm like, dude, this deer's got it made because he can bed in a spot. He can wait there. He can feed on the oaks during the day, especially kind of early season. Bed up and then go up at night when the thermals drop. He can go up there, scent check as he's going up top of the ridge, pop over, start feeding. Perfect. I mean, it's money, dynamite spot. And all the pressure he's got coming from the top, coming from the bottom, he can't come from the side. And I'm like, dad, gum. I'm like, dude, this deer's got it made. It's one of the spots I haven't been back there. And he could watch all the pressure on that road system on the public. He couldn't see. No, he sure. couldn't see that far down. You could hear it. Yeah. It. I don't want to get too. Many yeah uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a major 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 road system but no he, he was high enough up he could hear it but if you were coming from below him where he was better at especially in the wintertime when some of that stuff died back he was kind of tucked up in some fallen trees he could see down for sure like mm-hmm. if you were on that flat below him like in those oaks oh you'd be busted 100 like there's no yeah. chance so it's like the only way you could get to him is like get up to that same elevation or just above him and then side hill over within a certain distance and just hope your thermals Play out a light windy day, light variable day. Like you don't, because mm-hmm. if you had any kind of wind in there, I think it would just swirl back over. But uh, again, it's just one of those things that that buck was bed in a spot that was right up against. There's pressure up there. There's a shoot house. There's like, there a freaking blind up there. Again, hundred yards from. I walked up. There's property line. Looked over. Like man, they got it made up there on this private land. And, uh, but he was just making his home there and I wish I would have had a trail camera with me cause that would have been a cool spot. I might not go, I don't know. I've, I've talked myself about that was back in 2018. Make me, I don't want to go back up there and see if there's another buck using that area. But another spot up in Tennessee in the place to hunt, this was this past year, bow season got in a spot and I was parked down below like an ag, like some, like some fields up above me and some secondary points coming off this main ridge and not real steep country. Nothing like what y'all are used to more like that gentle rolling hills, but it kind of dropped off mm-hmm. these little points. And there's like little thickets up there. And I parked my truck and I wasn't going to hunt right there. I was going to keep working my way farther around on this ridge. But when I got out of the truck, I could smell the thermals dropping. Overcast came over, light windy day, light variable day. And the thermals started dropping just because that overcast. It was real hot and humid. And you could smell the deer. You could smell deer right there, like literally 80 yards above me where I had to park at. And I'm like, And I called Andrew. I was like, man, I'm like, dude, there are deer. Right here, I mean, I can't do anything about it because I'm clearly they know I'm here. Like, there's no way I can get up on them. But there's a ton of does in there. I'm sure it's probably a doe family group. It didn't smell like buck, but it smelled like if you ever smelled like a deer. Like, put your nose down on freaking fur after you kill a deer. It, that's what it smelled like. And I'm like, dang, dude, like, they're just up there on that point, probably watching me. And I kill, I killed a doe that day. That was the opening day of uh, Tennessee's spash year. And uh, but it's like it's interesting when you find these spots that that was right next to the road system. Again, mm-hmm. again, all these guys are trying to walk way far back in. There was bucks in this area and they weren't super far off the roads. And they were in the areas that, like, I bumped a buck, suspected it was a buck because it was bedded alone compared to all these other does. I was finding they were in big doe groups. And he was right there, probably 150 yards from that parking spot, which is a one little makeshift really, it was a dump spot where people dump trash at. Yeah. Okay. And I'd pulled my truck in there, backed it up so people can't see my license plate. So they don't know where I'm from. So don't like locals knowing for whatever reason. And bumped this deer off, rocked right the side of this little ridge point right there. And I'm like, dang, dude. Anyways, and went in there, had a good hunt. But it's like, like you're saying, those hiking trails and things can play a big factor, especially when you want to hunt spots repetitively Rapidly. or the deer just used to people walking up and down like a big buck. Like, you know, I had somebody tell me this, it was a guess. It's like, if you knew someone was trying to kill you, okay? You do one of two things: either go as physically far away from that person as possible, or you try to circle around and get an ambush on him, where you kind of figure out, you know, potentially where is this pressure coming from, so you can visually see and hear what's happening and what's coming. And it's like the bucks can do one of two things: either going to be super close, or they're going to be super far away. It's there, there's not a whole bunch. At least I've seen not a whole bunch right in the middle. That's usually what we see.
3: Yeah, eighty you percent know, of the time, probably. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. Which brings up, not to repeat this story too much, but I want to talk about. It. Adam, back when we interviewed you the first time, which I think was 2020, 2019, 2020, something like that, you had just killed a big deer, which is the mountain upstairs, is a freaking huge deer. It was a like 13-point yeah, uh, in Ten- uh, not Tennessee, North Carolina, mm-hmm. on uh, public land. And Heath, you shot one that morning as well, yes. and that was yeah. early season. And those deer were kind of in the area, kind of overlooking like a parking area or something like that.
3: Both of mm-hmm. them were from opposite mm-hmm. sides of the road. So,
0: so I know, we, Adam, we've heard your story, which I, we can talk about, but I want to hear Heath's perspective as well. This is something that y'all scouted out and found these beds. you bumped the bucks, like what told you these deer were in this area? That is a great question. So we originally were going to
2: another area about as a crow flies five miles away, but it was higher in elevation, mm-hmm. and we got up there and it was fogged in. so we we, we were not able to go hunt the deer that we were originally wanted to go hunt. so we, we thought, well, let's go look at this other area. It's low elevation, won't be fogged in, and we've been talking about it for years. Let's go over there. So we go down, it was all the option, you know, so we go down to the lower elevation, we get out of the truck and we start getting into the woods. And immediately about 150 yards from the gate where you park, we found, we, we ran a deer off and we could tell, we didn't hear him run off. We could see the tracks. We, he had just been laying there. The bed was basically still warm and we could tell that he'd been watching the road. And I told Adam, I was like, if we can't find anything better than this today, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be against setting up here for the morning hunt. If you'll come back in here in the morning, you know, what
0: time of year is this by the way?
2: Uh, September 17th, 17th or 18th. Yeah. yeah, It's like the second week of, of bow season in North Carolina, but we, we really pounded a lot of ground that day. I think we we walked for five hours. Yeah. And we didn't find anything deep, uh, but we got back and we were coming back to the truck. And we go on the we're on the opposite side of the ridge, and we found a hundred yards from the truck. Now he he couldn't see the truck, but he could hear the truck. He could hear you talking at the truck, and that below where this spot was was uh, private land access. This where the private land people down be- below came in, mm-hmm. so any deer hanging out there could could watch. the The main pressure they were, were getting were those private land people, and then. The public land people parking at the parking lot, and he could hear those. But uh, I think
3: most of those people were just walking right by.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely walking right by. I mean, most situations I would have walked right by this spot, but we get down there, and there are lots of ve- what I'd call velvet rubs.
0: Mm-hmm, the little whip rubs and everything? Yes,
2: everywhere, and lots and lots of fresh droppings and a f- brand new fresh grape with urine in it. You know, uh, this
0: is at the second bed location. Yes. Yes. But we're
2: not 150 yards from Apart. each other. Did
0: y'all find all this on the same day? Yeah. yeah. So y'all yeah. just kind of circled around. Yes. that's exactly
2: mm. what we did. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was two decent spots to hunt, and we just both jumped over the those spots the next morning and both got a shot. We got and, in there early. Yeah, the beds, uh, the buck, the 13-pointer Adam killed, uh, the beds were 30 yards around the side of the hill from all the sign that we found. We didn't find the beds until after we killed the deer. And then everything made perfect sense after we killed the deer. And those beds, it was, a, it, was it was, two bucks. It was a bachelor group using mm-hmm. them. And uh, they were even, they were nasty. They were using the bathroom in their own beds. Like they were staying there all day long during the daylight hours mm-hmm. in those beds. They weren't using any other beds. They felt safe right there and it it was so strong like it was With it was ammonia, nasty strong yeah. yes very nasty strong but that was just a, a hunt that got ruined we couldn't go where we wanted to go we switched to a lower elevation went in the two spots we found that were worth hunting both spots had acorns and okay. both spots had be- fresh beds but we only found the fr- the bed the first day at the spot that I hunted we didn't know the other two beds were there until after we killed the deer after Adam killed the deer and then we walked over there and he was within bow range of those two beds and the way that happened those those bucks came back up from private land the two that he saw mm-hmm. and uh they came up and hit those acorns under him right before going back to their beds and they just didn't make it but and, reading that fresh sign and just getting right on it right then and getting up in the tree early and and just hoping that they didn't catch our scent coming back in that morning
0: wait you know? I, I, that's and that's something that's super interesting so North Carolina, like there's a couple other states, like, like Kentucky's one that comes to mind. Uh, I'm trying to think of any other states that aren't right out west. They have a super. I think Delaware has a super early bow season mm-hmm. um, where you have that September opener where you have opportunities. Well, that, that deer was hard horned, right? Well, yeah, of course, because <laughs> he has a
3: little bit of velvet. Yeah. On <laughs> I don't mean, you know side. why I asked that. I'm like, <laughs> he's hard
0: horned on the mount, on the man upstairs. Uh, but it's like when you can hunt that early. I know Andre DeQuisto, we've interviewed before as well, come from Iowa. Loves like states that you do have that September opener because you have such a good opportunity if you know what you're looking for to get one or two really good shots at a big buck early season while they're still kind of bashed up they're super patternable before they break up, especially like once October hits. Uh, and you know us in Alabama we don't have that opportunity but out here that's something that's really really interesting and for these some of these other states that have those op- early bow openers. I know uh, South Carolina's got that crazy opening uh, opener uh, for the rifle season it's like April or August 15th or something like that. Um, but again, you have that cool opportunity here to be able to play that and put that together. But you also, Heath, so Adam shot that deer, mm. but did you get a shot that morning too? Yeah, Not I to did. No-
2: and this, this was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. usually I'm up way early, mm-hmm. but, uh, we didn't set an alarm clock that night and we got up kind of late. Adam made me late. <laughs> so we get up in the tree and it, you know, it's daylight at like ah, six mm-hmm. I'm getting up in the tree at five o'clock and that's, that's kind of late for me. If I'm going back in over a bed, you know. Um, keep going. All right, keep, yeah. going. keep going. So <clears throat> I get up in the tree, but I don't. I don't have my bow up in the tree yet, mm-hmm. and I hear the buck coming. He's coming up the finger ridge up to me, and I'm sat off to the side of the point where my thermals are coming, are g- sucking down where I think he's not going to come from. There were trails coming that way, but there was mm-hmm. no sign on those trails showing that that he was using it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was just those using those trails. But anyways, he comes up and. I mean, there's no wind at that point. And he comes up and goes right to that bed. And then he, I can hear him circle it like a dog. You know how a dog will like do a circle a couple of times before he lays down. Mm-hmm. I that, whoop, almost laughed that, out loud when I heard him do it. Cause it's the first time I was ever able to hear something cool like that. You know, I hear him walk in. I know it's a buck by the way he's walking the way he sounds. And then he circles twice and lays down. So then like my heart's going crazy. I'm like, Oh gosh, I am going to get a shot. Mm -hmm. Here in another hour and a half and then I think no I'll never get a shot my bow's at the bottom of the tree and a bunch of briars hung up you know because I I didn't cut any of those briars you know around the base of my tree was a bunch of green briar Mm -hmm. so then it takes me like I wore myself out getting my little five pound bow to the top of the tree because I'm leaning way out you know and then I'm easing it out of those briars and it's kind of stuck you know and i got my quiver on my bow and my ears are, are getting stuck in the in the you know i made a little bit of noise how far is the bay by the way uh it was 25 yards oh my gosh dude! yeah and so i i surely thought i was gonna gonna get busted getting that that bow up but and i was sweating by the time i you know it didn't mm-hmm. weigh much but trying to you know you lean over and try to slowly a little at a time you know i mean ever so slowly inch by inch get your bow up the tree without a deer that's standing there hearing it and you will wear yourself out it was like doing a 30 minute workout by the time I got Mm -hmm. that bow up the tree so then I I had like I hadn't even got my camera arm or anything out yet so I had to get I had to put up and this is where knowing your equipment really pays off Mm -hmm. I knew where everything was in that backpack I knew where every little thing was and I closed my eyes I know it was dark anyways but I closed my eyes and I concentrated and I dug everything out of that backpack and it took me an hour but I got the camera arm on everything, my bow up, everything without that deer busting and running off. And, uh, you know, I didn't see him right at daylight, even though I knew exactly where he was at. There was a big uh, fallen tree down Mm -hmm. there. And I, about 30 minutes after daylight, he needed to stretch. He'd been laying down since five o'clock. You think about it. He'd been laying down and it's like seven o'clock. He got up and started feeding on acorns that were right there on his bed. And he finally came in. I, I took the shot. It was a little far from me. Uh, Back then, I was using a lightweight arrow setup. This was the last deer I shot at with a lightweight arrow setup because it didn't penetrate good. But, you know, he got up and started feeding on him his acorns just to stretch his legs. I'm sure he'd have laid back down. What time know. was that? Uh, he got up at 7 o'clock.
0: So, could you see him when he was bed down or was there no, enough cover?
2: No, I knew he was there, but I couldn't see him. Even, you know, even, even though knowing where the bed was the day before, getting up in that tree and then watching the sun come up, I just assumed I'd see him as soon as the sun come up. And he sat still, and I, I d- could not see him behind that log until he stood up and started feeding on acorns, And then eventually I got the shot, and it, it turns out I hit him high, mm. and I hit him through the back straps. And uh, But, you know, from my naked eye, until I got home and played it on the big screen, I, cu- I didn't realize he ducked until I I thought, well, you, you pulled a little bit and hit him in the shoulder, you know, because it didn't penetrate good. It was and quiet. There was yeah. no wind. Yeah. He heard the. Uh, it, it was interesting hearing that buck come in and the, and the whole experience it was one of the best experiences I've ever had in the woods, even though I didn't, I didn't kill the deer, but I went back the next year mm-hmm. and found the shed off the right side of him, uh, 80 yards from on the same trail that he ran off after I shot him. I found his shed, the, the shed that was on him when I shot him. So I did actually go back and the deer, he wasn't using that bed anymore, but he was still using that same area.
0: And I want to talk more about early season honey on this episode because I'm really interested about it uh, and kind of like that kind of success, you know, that y'all had. I mean, I, I still call it success because you were able to get in there and stay in his bubble. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking critical distance for that long. Get away with it. Even with falling thermal, set up correctly, which we're going to talk about a little bit more mm-hmm. in the setups for that that kind of spot. But fool him to the point to get the shot off. I mean, that's that's extremely impressive. And of course, you know, Adam, you killed that big buck that morning as well. Um, so same morning, both of y'all had shots, and you know, both of y'all hit deer. Just with one recovery and the other one just mm-hmm. happenstance. He just was able to make it out alive. But it, it brings up something that uh, Heath, like what you were talking about. One thing that you're talking about, like getting in and setting him around these beds. There's a guy. He will not come on the podcast. He's about 75, 76 years old. I know one listener knows who this person is because he was the one that told me about him. Actually. Uh, Glenn Solomon, who we interviewed back in 2019 was the one that told me about this gentleman, um, after we did his interview before he passed away from Georgia, 76 years old. He might be 77 now, maybe 78. And back in the eighties, he was hunting in Georgia had the early opener and that he would go out and look at fine deer early season, September in and around ag country. And he would get permission, knock on doors, just have permission to hunt properties, these little woodlots. And he found where bachelor groups were coming out in these ag fields at night. He would come in after you got a little pattern on him, watching him. This is back in the 80s, watching him. He'd figure out how he could come around from the backside of that woodlot once they were out in that ag field because they'd be out there all night long feeding. And he'd come back and he would circle in with a little crappy, whatever kind of flashlight he was using back then, and try to find their beds in the dark. On the first time going in there, little wood, I'm talking little woodlots, like little two, three acre woodlots, find the bed and then take his climber, climb up a tree, the old baker climbing stand and climb a tree where he could shoot potentially to that air that they're going to stand up at, sit there and get there a couple hours before daylight. And then he'd sit there. He said he, and I, I talked to this guy for about two hours on the phone. He won't do the podcast. Um, he'd sit there and he would wait. He could hear him come back. He'd hear him lay down, chew the cud, do the whole thing at bachelor group, not just one deer, multiple deer do this. And um, he was able to shoot his biggest deer he ever shot. Do, anyways, long story short, someone would come up. A lot of times he couldn't get a shot opportunity, just like what you did. You know, mm-hmm. he, you're right there within 25 yards. You can't see him nine eight nine o'clock in the morning they'd stand up reposition that's when he gets shot and the biggest deer he ever shot was like a mid-160s doing this and it was back then he said he did it for a few years until like the mid nineties, lost permission and stopped doing it and then hunted public and he had some awesome public land tactics too guy doesn't want to come on the podcast for whatever reason uh because anyways but uh very very interesting though because he had success doing it and it's cool to kind of talk to somebody else like you guys mm-hmm. who's had success again early season set up on some of those beds because it's like it takes so much strategy, which he was doing, which is crazy, going in the night for trying to find the bed. At least y'all mm-hmm. kind of knew where they were at, and hit technology. All here's the pin; he's right here, so I kind of know that buffer. I don't have to right. walk all the way up to the bed, but somehow he was able to have success doing that. Uh, That's brilliant. It, it is, but it's like oh, to me, it's like ballsy too. Right? So I'm like, Dude, you're, you're gambling. Yeah, you're like, like you're hoping to you're hoping to God. First off, he, they're not already there when you get there, which he was talking about going in like two o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. two thirty in the morning, because he's trying to find that bed real quickly. Once he finds the bed, finds the sign, he's backing off. How the deer didn't smell? Them, I don't know. Can't tell you. But uh, you know, got set up and shot quite a few deer doing that. And he was like, he's like, and again, older gentleman, super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things that's like, it can be done in the right situation when you understand how to deal with thermals, yeah. understand how not to leave excess scent on the entrance right. He's coming mm-hmm. in and coming from a back way. There's yeah. one thing Heath you talked about that I found very interesting is you set up on the backside of that little knob where your scent was dropping out a direction that you weren't thinking he was coming right. up from. And I'm, Adam, were you kind of set something similar for the most part on your setup? Or did you just pretty much pick a tree and climb up?
3: Oh, I put a lot of thought into it, but mm-hmm. it did not go my way. I ended up getting lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, those deer, if the thermal, there was no wind that I could tell. Uh, Heath was talking about how quiet it was. Yeah, when not I was trying to daylight, get that bow out of, those, uh, yeah. out of those greenbriars. But those bucks came straight up from below me. And the thermal should have been sinking right to them because yeah. it, was, it was before the sun came up. Mm-hmm. I was dropping uh, milkweed. Yeah. And it was going uphill. Don't know. Don't know how that works. Don't know how that happened, but it saved me that morning. The thermals were going straight up. I mean, I, I my milkweed went straight up the mountain way before daylight with no wind. I don't know how it happened. Not to get too sidetracked on
0: this and it might cut some of this out, but, uh, where you, you were hunting at, was it around where you had like a really, really deep area close by you, like very, very deep to you. So there is a, there is a, it is a It is a thermal. I don't know. We need to have someone I don't know, truly understand thermal like some kind of scientist. There's a guy I talked to. One of our past guests, he talked about when the falling thermals, thermals just don't continue to fall because it's airflow. And at some point, it has to push out. So there, we had a guest that we had on the podcast before um, who he actually talked about that finding where all the thermals drop down to and at one side of that drop of that low spot, that super low spot, wherever it's at, Air current's going to go back uphill, even if it's cold and everything else, it's got to get pushed out because you can't just it's like a it's not like a vacuum where it just keeps going to one spot. It's got to go out one way. And he would find that spot and hunt that spot. So it's like you have that one spot where all the all this all the air is going down and it's got to push up the easiest thing for it to go up, which could have been that secondary ridge point you're on, and that's what was happening. That had to been what was happening, interesting. which is super interesting. Yeah. I've never looked at, but this one guy we've had on the podcast before, uh, and in my main my his name is I'm blanking on his name right now, but he swears by that. And his favorite rut spots, not to get too, no, man, we're getting weeds on this, is that spot for morning hunts, for hunting scrapes. Because a buck, he will still come downwind or right next to it, and he can still get up above it and get an advantage because it's happening up until the sun happens. And if it's like an eastern-facing slope or something like that, your thermal's going to start rising way quicker, and you get away with murder in that spot. So it's like, you know, it's, yeah, there, there's a lot to that when it comes to like, you see, I, I love this podcast. We learned so many things from this podcast and different guests. Well, that that saved me that morning. Yep. You were a face in east. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things in that, which is, it's again, it's super interesting. But back, I want to kind of get back to like the early season aspects of everything. Adam, one thing you told me about is like, especially more, even more recently, you have, you feel like you have more confidence going into trying to kill a good deer early season, especially talking September, maybe even October compared to like the rut or post or late season. I mean, what's kind of like your take on that when it comes to like either finding a pattern or just your breakdown of like, I feel like I have more confidence early season and seeing more deer too.
3: Well, several things to that. The first, my buddy TJ here after many spectacular, uh, air, fast arrow setups, uh, fails, you know, my buddy TJ here in the room with us, he, uh he, got me hooked up with a heavy aero setup and that completely changed my confidence early season because I went from having some spectacular fills with lightweight era setups to it doing what it should be doing. Um, So once we figured that out, that's got my confidence way up. Uh, But as I've gotten older, um, I used to just, I don't know, I fell into that, that rut mind frame where everybody thinks about the rut Mm -hmm. and and you want to take off and go during the rut. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've figured out that it's almost easier to get on a big buck early season if you know I mean you know where he's if you can find out where he's feeding, mm-hmm. you find out where he's bedding. put yourself in between them. I mean, it, it's just a lot simpler. There's a lot less variables involved there. So we actually last year, TJ and I, my buddy Zach Warren um, and Heath, we all went and did a a hunt in an area we've never hunted before in Virginia. And and that was the, the whole point. We all wanted to go in. It was like the second week of October, I think. Yeah, we decided weekend. we're just going to go up there for four or five days, dive in head first and see who can kill the first deer, you know. And we we were doe hunting, uh, but uh we went in there and we and we everybody had their different theories, but we were putting them all to the test. Mm-hmm. Kind of like these uh public land uh, hunts these guys do. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember public what they land call challenge public yeah. land challenge. That's kind of what we did in a, in a brand new area. And uh, the first day didn't didn't, you know, it was kind of slow, but Second day, we see some does coming off, and even in uh, early October, these does were coming off the national forest and going down into a, a green bottom near private land. Uh, they weren't, there wasn't hardly any acorns that year, which is the way I prefer it, because mm-hmm. if you can find some acorns, you're into it hot and heavy. But we just backed up from where we saw those does come out, and on the first finger ridge, there was a series of scrapes, fresh scrapes, and just massive rubs. I mean, for around here, mm-hmm. massive. Maybe not Iowa massive, but oh, don't, I ta- saw I yeah, live in Iowa. About yeah. I, was,
0: I, was, I spent seven days out there, and saw some giant rows we talked about earlier. <laughs> well, these these
3: were like calf size, and that which yeah. got me excited here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were coming off the mountain behind it and going down into those green bottoms where we would saw those does funneling. Um, so we found the rubs and the scrapes right there, and we knew they were staging right there. So we backed up went down across the bottom and went up on the first hill and that's where those does were all bedding. So we set up down there. Sure enough, the first evening, 11, I had 11 deer on me, including one buck that was just tearing up a tree. Um, the second evening I took Keith back in there, set him where I was the first evening. Of course I moved every 60 yards where I thought that buck was actually <laughs> going to come through <laughs> and left him sitting where the does were going to come through. but, um, but then we got inter- interrupted by a singing duo of uh, of new public land hunters that came in at an hour before dark to hang a set for i guess muzzleloader or rifle season yeah they came in off the private land they did they came in off a of private land and um i heard singing i i knew and it was a song i recognized it. whoever it was could sing i mean it, it was Pink, i recognized Pink it folk college was it Dark Side of the Moon?
0: <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm thinking it was Dark yeah, Side of the that Moon. It is ripping it, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and the guy had like, the second guy, I remember he had like a flat bill hat on and some really mm-hmm. nice white sneakers, and he's walking up a creek bottom. I'm thinking, you're ruining I don't think he'd ever been in the woods before, but he's mm-hmm. helping his buddy hang a tree stand, and they, they went right underneath heath. I mean, like he could have dropped his bow on top of them. Mm-hmm. They haven't seen him yet. And then they come by me, and they pick a tree 25 yards in front of me, there's a doe standing ten yards from them, watching them. and doesn't run off. It just sits there and watches them. And uh, they hang the stand. And and at about thirty minutes into their fumbling around with the stand, they they were young hunters. I don't think they'd hung many. About thirty minutes into it, I'm I'm just really close to getting down and offering to help them hang the stand. I'm like, if I if you guys will leave before <laughs> it gets dark, can I let me just help you hang the stand? So, anyways. They finally get done hanging the stand. The guy had ratchet strapped his hand to the tree, like in between the stand. (laughs) (laughs) And he couldn't get it out. It was almost entertaining if it wasn't my last evening on this hunt. So they finally get down. They walk out. And within five minutes, I had deer coming off both sides. Those deer had stood on both heels and watched those guys hang hang that stand. They came down. I shot one of the does. And then right after I shot the doe, here comes the buck I had been after. He'd been standing up on the next knoll where he was bedding watching those guys hang in that stand and he still came straight down but it was after dark before he got to me so at least i but but the, the point is where Heath was at i had, had 11 does around me in a bottom mid-october if that would have been during the rut i would have gotten smelled within 15 seconds mm-hmm. i don't know what it is about i don't guess i have a, a deep understanding of thermals to know exactly what's going on there but i don't seem to get smelled as much early season as i do late season Um, So when I do have a big group of deer around me, I'm I'm not getting busted.
1: When you think turkey calls... Think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different reed configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB hen, some days I might like the ghost cut. Some situations I might like the country girl call. All. you know that i can cut on really hard where on other situations i might like the all pro that i can get a little bit softer on bottom line there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey you can get 15 off of your order at houndstooth game calls by using the promo code sop24 that's sop24 use that promo code it'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast
0: So, we interviewed a gentleman, I think his name, if I, I might botch his name, Tom Brownley, I believe, professor up at, I think he's Montana State University. Um, he's a national renowned canine instructor. We did a whole episode with him about scent and how dogs use scent and also correlation between that and deer because a deer has, we looked at the stats, a deer has a much stronger nose than any dog alive. Okay. So, to give you an idea, dogs are about 220 million. Scent receptors is the—I don't know if that's the correct term—but just for this terminology, that's what we're talking about. Deers get about three hundred million, and that's like all dogs. Like there's not a bloodhound, same thing. Okay, so and we talked a ton about what a deer or what a dog's capable of, and he, again, kind of broke that down from potentially what a deer and other big game animals are capable of doing as well. And we were talking about, you know, for some reason you were getting busted early season. One thing that Tom talked a lot about was the idea of there's a couple things that go against scent and how scent is dispersed and also things that kill that scent the molecules before it ever gets to an animal. Number one's is heat. Heat is terrible for scent. So the hotter it is, the worse the scenting conditions. Most people are like oh it's hot man, they the deer can smell me. If it's hot and humid, yes, humidity is a positive for scent. But if you get hot and dry, that's terrible scenting conditions for dog or deer. So if you have one of those times low humidity, you look at the hey it's going to be under 20% humidity and it's going to be hot, dude, I mean, there's a a potential. I'm not saying you're going to get away with them being directly downwind of you and on thermals and everything. We have a lot higher chance of you not getting busted during that versus if it's 85% humidity, same temperature. So, right.
3: The stars aligned that day, and if it weren't for the singing uh, Pink Floyd duo, (laughs) that deer would have been in trouble. Yeah. Uh, But uh, I guess what I was trying to get at is, is it's a lot more predictable, it seems, early season. Um, especially if you live in a state where you, where it's, where you're bow hunting or archery, uh, when I first started hunting in Ohio during the rut, I just thought, well, it's the rut I'm going to Ohio. It's going to be awesome. No one told me how hard it was to shoot a running deer with a bow that's chasing a doe and you can't take his attention off of her. You know, you pull back and then you have to let down Then you pull back and you have to let down. And he was at 25. Now he's at 10. Now he's at seven. Now he's at 50, you know, running mm-hmm. around like, you know, it's a lot easier with a rifle or loader. But with archery set up, um, it's a whole lot easier earlier season uh, to get it done than it is during the rut. And and I've seen the last couple of years, I've seen more deer. My best days in the woods were in uh, October. Uh, generally in October, I'll see more deer in one day than I do during the rut. I never I, – this year we saw – I think I saw when the first doe came into heat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a week after the hunt in Virginia, and I was down here in North Carolina, had an early season doe come into heat. And had three bucks. I mean, every every large buck in the area was after that one doe. Unfortunately, I didn't realize she was in heat and would have bucks behind her. I shot the doe, <laughs> got down to field dress the doe, and all the bucks came in. And I, I did not get it. I educated some deer that day. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> he, has, he has some more to hunt for this year. <laughs> I want to hit on
2: something else that's worked for us, you know, as far as early season uh-huh. and predictability being twins and being kind of close, you know, and always being each other's hunting partners has been an advantage to us because we're not not—um—what sort of looking for. We don't care which, which one of us gets on the game. So early season, when the deer are predictable, you know, we're spreading out. We're taking our topo maps, looking at the area, picking the two best spots out, flipping a coin, setting them. And then as we see what we see, then we're able to move and you got two sets of eyes early season in a predictable time setting you got two sets of eyes you're getting double the information in one hunt you're not spooking up the area near as bad as if you were one guy in there hunting you know two three four times to get the same amount of information so i think what's worked for us a lot of times is that we're totally honest with each other and working together as a as partners and we go in and and we're we're hunting the deer when they're predictable and we're getting that information a lot quicker with putting less scent and noise in the woods while we're doing it, you know?
0: Yeah, I think we've talked, uh, that's been a conversation in the past talking about like hunt man days. If you have two guys out there on one day on one Saturday hunting, that's two mandates. So that's two mm-hmm. man days worth of experience at one time that you're learning. And the more we've done that too with a group of guys, we get four or five guys together that, again, share that information very close. You all go out hunt for a week. Well, it goes from five man days to twenty man days, where you're learning tw- you're learning twenty days worth of information all at the same time from different areas, and you can fine tune what's happening. Now, out of state trips, that's the ticket. Yes, compared to going out there by yourself, and then you're like, oh well, man, I'm just out here not seeing anything. But if you were two hundred yards from there, all the deer could have been right by. Y'all like, talked about talking about in some situations being two hundred yards apart. One yeah. y'all see the deer, the other one maybe not so much. It's like that much of a a slight shift is can be what can take. Uh, you know, from having success to not having success, um, uh, is something that simple. So, mm-hmm. and sometimes we'll set up, if we can't find anything, you know, only
2: one good spot that we think is going to be decent to hunt, you know, we might go in and set up 50, 60 yards from each other where, mm-hmm. where we we can almost shoot to each other's trees. You like know? We're gonna we, don't, we don't care who gets the shot, mm-hmm. just that somebody does, you know?
0: We, I did that a little bit when I first started hunting public I hunted with my brother uh, this is back in college and uh my, one of my younger brothers and he he's not he doesn't hunt much at all anymore just not really into it he's got his work and everything he's just not a huge passion of his unfortunately but we and him hunted and my to be honest my because I drug him around public land he's like man, we aren't seeing any deer dude because uh, that was in the very early stages of hunting public and we were struggling but one time we did the same thing said I think we were 30 yards apart. We walked into this spot totally blind in the dark, going off Onyx Maps. Back when I first got Onyx Maps, and we're looking on the maps. I'm like, dude, I'm like, this looks pretty good. I'm like, we're gonna sit right off this big drainage. There. I think there's oaks around here, looking at the maps, looking at Google Image, you know, looking at like Google Maps and a bunch of other things, trying to figure out, you know, is it pines or is it hardwoods in this area? Cause I've never been here before. We go separate and we're set up. Sun comes up, and I'm like, cause I was telling him we're just gonna sit right next to each other. You know, he climbs up his tree, I climb my tree, and our climbers. And I swear we were sitting right on a bluff. I mean, it, what I thought was a subtle creek drainage that looked like it on, you know, on the maps was I'm talking like sheer drop off. And my, and we're facing, I'm like, this kind of sucks. And the wind was blowing back the way we came. So I'm like, we're just like sitting with the, we were looking, like even a great rifle spot because I could see the other <laughs> ridge side. I'm like, it, dude, this sucks. And we're sitting there and we had a, dude, had some bucks come across the other side sparring early season. Uh, Like this early season in Alabama was like mid-October, late-October. Mm-hmm sparring and next thing i know there's a buck walks out my brother doesn't see him walks right underneath his stand because he hears all the commotion somehow comes in without being without smelling us nice really nice you know eight point uh nothing crazy just you know eight, probably 18 inches wide just a nice deer and uh I, I try to get his attention and i'm like it's right on the verge i, I didn't really want to shoot that far you know 35 40 yards and i'm like fuck did this i like, look down and the buck th- has no clue in the world he's just like looking at the other bucks fighting my brother looks down and he's like and he's like freaking out. I like, oh man. He's like, I see him get up and he's like all super tense there. And he's got his bow. And like, he goes to turn. That buck looks up at him and just splits and just runs off. And he gets his grunt call. He's like, rawr, 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 just trying to stop the deer. And I'm like, dude, you're not, you don't have a gun. Like, he's way out of gun range. <laughs> Next thing I know, he goes across that freaking deep draw, comes up the other side and goes with those other bucks. And they just all, you know, run off. And desperation like, grunts desperation yeah. grunts and I I'll, did and, some of those in like really a month did. and a half before even any kind of rutting activity even starts happening a month and a half before that plus he just scared the hell, like the deer just saw you up in the tree and you start <laughs> grunting <at him>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but what I was trying to get at is the idea of like we haven't done that anymore about hunting close you know when we go out hunting talking about with a group of guys you're or 500 yards apart we're all going in different directions and it now makes me think going back if you are hunting with a group of guys you find a good area don't hey, like this is my spot. Like, guys, let's go in and, like, me and Andrew, you know, our buddy Mike or whatever, go in like, hey, let's hunt. You know, if it's a really good area and we think we can kill deer right then and there, mm-hmm. let's not BS with it. Let's go in there getting 50, right. 60 yards apart, what makes sense, or 100 yards apart, 200 yards apart. And let's try to kill deer now instead say, like, oh, let's, let's see him and try to kill him in a couple more days. Let's right. kill him right now if we, if the sign's there. Hunting him as, as a tribe and not an individual. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, your, your that's success
2: rate goes up so much I, when, I, I, when you don't care, when you're not greedy. Mm-hmm. your success rate gives up. Absolutely. It's more fun.
0: It's way yeah. more fun. Yeah. And that's like, especially like when it comes to like running trail cameras and everything, you can learn so much more. But it's like, like you said, early season, one thing we've seen, and maybe y'all can talk about this a little bit is when we find bucks early season, especially the mature bucks, they are in little pockets. Like there's a couple of them together and it's not like they're everywhere. Like I've heard a saying like 90% of the deer are in 10% of the woods. And it seems like 90% of the mature bucks are in 10% of the woods, especially early season. Like they are in one little pocket. Whether that's eighty yards off the road or four miles in this analogy, four miles off the road. They're in these little pockets and you can be anywhere around. There's no sign and all of a sudden you walk right into that sign. And yeah. they're in like the one area's got everything they need. And then you're in that hot spot and you got to kill them right then there or try to find them when they break up. And that's one of the things we like
2: about early season. And that you know,
3: you know you've heard it a million times. Most recent sign. Mm-hmm. That's why. I mean, but in September, like that we were talking about that earlier where I killed the thirteen and he shot that big wide eight. You know, there was another bigger deer with the 13-pointer I killed. So all, and and me and Heath were less than 150 yards apart. We'd walked for five hours earlier that day. Mm -hmm. All three of those big bucks were within 150 yards of each Mm -hmm. other. So what you're saying is exactly, exactly right. But now in October, we've seen that change. So it seems like maybe they break up Mm -hmm. by mid-October. I don't know that, have we ever seen, I'm trying to think out loud here. Latest time we saw a bachelor group. Yeah, you know, probably probably September.
2: I don't think we've ever seen one on yeah, October. no, I don't think so either.
0: Well, so if we're talking like early season, because I'm totally fine, even though like Alabama season is not opening that early, but like you're talking Georgia, you're talking North Carolina, you're talking South Carolina, at least on private land. I don't think public land opens that early. talking Kentucky, talking Arkansas opens in you know, mid-September. Tennessee opens late September. Oxford opens late September too. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of these states. Delaware opens super early, like September 1st or something crazy early like that september 4th so you have some of these states that do open that early so there is that opportunity to be able to do that and that's kind of where i want to hit on with this episode it's like you know for the guys that had that opportunity you're, uh, you're like you're almost shooting yourself in the foot and not trying to go out there and implement this instead of way oh, all we'll just wait for the rut well that you're kind of hoping and praying that that buck comes by and said right now you can go find him and try to kill him right, right. now you know when this is happening yeah
2: and that can be a boring long exhausting hunt you know you go for a week early season You may not find the right scenario to even set up and get up in the tree, you know, for a solid week. But if you do walk into that right scenario, your chances of killing that deer are so much higher than later on in the season.
0: Especially if you're a good, you have a decent understanding or a good understanding of woodsmanship and understanding your wind, understanding your entrance and exits, understanding your gear and getting in quiet. Mm -hmm. You could have the best spot in the world, but if you can't hang a stand quiet or your saddle quiet or whatever, I mean, especially if you're hunting over a bed and he's anywhere within a couple hundred yards of right. you, when you're trying to get in there. I mean, good luck. Yep. I mean, especially if you've got an oak right. flat down below or something.
3: Like, yeah, imagine the fella in the 80s with the big baker stand. I, I don't know how he
0: did That's what I'm saying. I'm like, dude, you must have been a
3: ninja. Yeah, and I have sad asked respect him, for that.
0: Yeah, I never asked him exactly how he went about silencing gear because he was, I mean, he's a he was a gear nut. One thing he was telling me, oh, I won't know. I've, I've said many times on the podcast. I'll tell you after the podcast. It's not relevant what we're talking about, but how he killed here in public lane was pretty freaking cool. As well, but the um, the idea of like you've got to know your gear if you're gonna have success early season, even though you get all the leaf. I've, well, early season or not you got to know your gear. That's the biggest thing I've seen is like success rates on public land or even private land. If you can be quiet, setting up and getting out, you have such a better opportunity of not even spooking the deer, but any other wildlife around you. So it's as natural as possible. Especially making metal metal contact noise. That's one thing I like about the saddles. Yeah. It's like a saddle, so easy to get up there, very little metal to make any noise. Um, so it's like, again, it's like, how can I be the quietest person possible getting in the stand where nothing knows about me, get in quiet. And also, it's good enough spot, man, I'm going to come back to it, you know, in a, in, a, in a few days or a week or whatever the situation is. So, but that's huge. Because you mentioned that earlier, you know, Heath, about like, you got to know your stuff. You got in quiet. That deer is mm-hmm. right there and you were able to get everything set up. And that takes experience. It takes knowing your gear and takes practicing with it too.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I just closed my eyes and took a couple deep breaths and said, all right, I'm going to do this. I know where everything's at. And, mm-hmm. you know, once I did that and, and calmed myself down, I was able to get set up with a deer laying right there at 25 yards.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and th- th- that tickled me to death. You know, like. like the battle's half won there. I mean, yeah. we're actually three quarters of the way. Oh, I mean, yeah. he's like, man, I got it. I'm like, I'm, I'm, we're set up. Okay, cool. Now all I was going to do is stand up now. He's got yeah. to give me an opportunity or something. Um, but it kind of brings up the the question of like, when you're talking early season, you've got to find those deer. And the problem is, and I'm guilty of it too. It's like a lot of guys that do like their summer scouting and stuff. And it seems like nobody wants to get out and quote unquote scout in season, especially early season, or they're trying to take what they learned back in July or August Mm -hmm. to apply it two months later. And so we don't, we don't scout any before the season. We
2: just go in, you know, as the season starts. So we've not, we've not been beating around in the woods at all. Not Mm -hmm. spooking anything. No trail cameras, nothing like that. No trail cameras, no nothing. Uh, I had two trail cameras out last year and, uh, add those two out in virginia but um we just go in we know about you know we know the general area we want to hunt and then we just go in and start looking around you know and it's, it's like treasure hunting you know yeah and, these
3: days it's most recent sign yeah period uh, until the rut it's pretty much most recent and then sign. that's yeah. where you
0: can kind of go historical right. sign and just everything else kind of big picture mm-hmm. why would a buck come through here along with your does and everything yep. else and i've heard a lot of people say okay if you're doing that i won't even hunt
2: unless i've less I'm sure, you know, but if, if we're, we've been walking around, we've been putting our scent in there anyways, and it's early season, you know, even if I don't find the best sign instead of leaving and going back to the truck, we'll usually get up for that last hour of daylight or something. Cause you never know. Mm-hmm. And you might get some information. You might see the, the deer coming within a hundred, 150 yards of you that, that you didn't realize we're going to be coming down through there and get the information for you to kill that deer the next day.
0: Let me ask: Have y'all ever had success early season, late morning, or potentially even sitting into midday? Any kind of activity like that? Now, hmm. I'm just That's talking about buck around bedding. Not talking like rut. I'm talking about like just buck getting up and moving that that time period.
3: Uh, d- I don't. I don't remember a, a buck late in the morning, but I, plenty of does mm-hmm. early yeah. season. I don't remember any. Buck, oh yeah, plenty bucks. of does
2: between ten and twelve o'clock. You know, a lot moving around but I, I can't think of any bucks moving that late i think the they kind of stick tighter to the same bed they stay in all day i, I saw one giant in september at 11 o'clock during the day but there were a lot of guys on the game land that day and i think somebody bumped him
0: well the reason i bring that up so our buddy michael pike when he was hunting georgia back their openers like september 8th night something like that He was out there one of those first couple of days of the season he found a bachelor group on a finger ridge like we're talking about Thick finger ridge, big oaks on it, and it was all saplings growing up underneath it. So it was this thick, nasty cover, and there was big pines up up against, like at the head, right the the very the base of that secondary ridge point. There's big pines right there, and he sat there. He got in like I think he hunted that morning, or he got in like super super early in the afternoon, like midday, and like one o'clock noon. One o'clock is like 101 degree heat index, and he had bucks getting up and shifting around and like feeding around in front of him under these oaks. And then, like, laying back down in bed. And he got him on video. Yes, yeah, he was filming some big deer, really big deer doing it in this bachelor group. And, you know, it was one of those things, probably should have got even more aggressive moving in there. And I know him and Andrew hunted the area a little bit, but it was maybe a little bit, you know, I, I'm armchair quartering back it, but maybe after having this conversation, it was a little bit too, like, oh, let's just kind of sit back and see what happens instead of getting in there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, just that was the area these bucks were, you know, comfortable with and he was seeing them get up he was hot as hell and actually he had a kidney stone that day to go to the hospital afterwards so Been there. <laughs> yeah. but it, it's it's one of those things that like those deer for whatever reason are super comfortable they were getting up to feed it was hot but you know they were in the shade it was you know nice it had a nice breeze in that area but you know as mike said you know he said on the podcast it was a visual stand site because he got in early he knew the bucks were going to be in there something with the moon phase and everything else he felt like there's gonna be some kind of activity and, and saw it and filmed it so well, you know they can. I think they can only lay there so long. Imagine I mean, if, you laying in your bed all day. Oh, yeah. you you got to get up and do something every. hour. roll and
2: then. over every two minutes. I mean, I can't imagine being a buck and laying there
0: for more than two hours without standing up and, and doing a little something. You know. So we got access to some uh, a, a GPS study in Alabama. We talked about this in the podcast before of uh, bucks throughout like three years of collar data on public land and how they reacted at all points of the season at data points for all points of the season. And some of the early season stuff, that's what was happening. Like, you could see bucks were moving throughout the day, but if you were not within, like, if it was bow season, like Alabama was like October through, like, no, you know, November is kind of like your bow season. That's still early season, especially on this one property. If you were not within 75 yards of his bed, you would have never seen that deer. Right. Never. Because he was, but he would, they'd bounce around like ping pong balls. You'd see, you know, he'd just bounce around this one spot. And there was one area, he was bed. this one specific buck I'm thinking of, three big oaks, right off the side of a log on the road, like a main trip. People were people were definitely into access point. And he was bedded right there, probably 40 yards off of it. And you could tell based off the trees it was open around it and there was privet, you could tell in the aerial imagery privet growing around it. And for a couple days, like once a day one day a week, a couple days a week he had seven different beds he'd bounce around from. And when he was at this one bed, he you could tell he'd get up and feed under these these oak trees early season and would not leave underneath the kind of canopy of these three trees and you can see like the pins all day long right there. And again, if you weren't in that spot, you, there was no way to kill yeah. that deer.
2: I think a lot of people are just too scared to gamble and mm-hmm. get in there and you know, I, I don't care to get busted. You know, most of the time I don't even know what the deer looks like. I've just found the bedding and I'm pretty sure it's buck bedding. And I'm willing to just get in there and gamble because I I'm not putting out cameras. I'm I'm not hooked on a on a big deer and then afraid I'm going to bust him, you know. Uh I think that's got a lot to do with 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 us seeing as many big deer as we do early is, is we're, we're getting right in there on them and we're not afraid to spook them out.
0: Cause if I, if I spook them out, I'm just going somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know, which I'm going to say this right now, this can be a part two episode. Cause I want to talk about that in a, a full length episode about some of that stuff. Cause we brought, brought some of those topics up earlier that I want to discuss on, but on the early season aspect real quick, and we'll kind of wrap this part up. What else do y'all think is like important for you all when it comes to like you gotta find the sign, you gotta find what these bucks are, you know, staying at. You know, you gotta find the beds. Do you feel like back in Alabama, I'll say from Alabama, deep south, a lot of pine thickets and again, every place is different. It seems like those beds are so random. It's not like you're going to this one knob, this one secondary ridge point, and you're gonna find a bed there. It's not that simple down there. Um, just as rolling hills, there's not a lot of that defined train feature. So it seems like a lot of it's based off some visual a visual aspect of the bed he's visually seeing something but also he's going to have that security cover and a lot of it looks very similar when you're out there but when you find that one bed like oh this makes sense but it's not like you can replicate it i look on a map here's gonna be a buck there for you guys in the mountains is it not as simple as there's a good chance we're going to find bucks bedded on some of these secondary ridge points or is there other features that you have to play into effect like hey i got you know fields down below i've got steep nasty face and these big secondary ridge points looks like there's rhododendron or or uh Mount Laurel on the maps. You know what are some of the other factors that tell you, like for early season, this is an area I want to go check out for potential, you know, sites that bucks gonna spend some time.
2: When we first started out, what we looked for was thickets all the time. That's the one thing we knew that deer that deer bedded in thickets. So we're always looking in. I know a lot of the old uh, Google Map imagery you used to be able to see the like wintertime pictures you could tell where all the Mm -hmm. where all the mountain thickets were you could you could see where all the laurel and rhododendron were and uh you know that was what we first went after you know when we didn't know anything during the rut we'd sit in between the thickets you know when we first started hitting the public up but we looked for that and then there's certain features you know like those secondary knobs off you know in virginia it's mostly big uh east west running uh Big ridges, mm-hmm. you know, like steep, big ridges. Big, Highest
0: point for the most part is going to be these big main ridge systems.
2: And none of the deer are bedding on the top of that main ridge. You know, they're all down from there, either in a good where an old fallen tree is falling over or something is made a flat that they, and, and, oh. and then a lot of them are on that secondary, those points down there. And they might have four or five beds around that point. You know, and then that.
3: occasionally we'll see them on the edge of a rhododendron thicket. So, it may not be on a point or a flat, but just a little, maybe it's just a little flatter than the area around it, Mm -hmm. but it's slap on the edge of a rhododendron thicket. Mm -hmm. So, they'll back up to that rhododendron thicket and look out. Um, But I can go in most of the game lands here. And, of course, uh, like you were talking about hunting the thicker areas, most of that's where the doe bedding is. Mm -hmm. Um, But now, like. Uh, I took a buddy about a month ago and walked up into a game land and we went around a corner and uh, we were in a bottom walking on a game land, logging road, went around a corner and uh, went up a little drainage uh, to our right. And there was, we found some scrapes up in there and I just pointed, I was like, up there's going to be the buck bed. And there was three scrapes together in that little bottom. Mm -hmm. And there were, there was obviously no human traffic going up through there. Everybody was walking right by it. It was actually where everybody accesses that place. And within 100 yards of that bend, there was three nice scrapes. And I just pointed up there. I was like, there'll be a buck bed right up there. And my buddy was like, okay, let's go look at it. Walked right up there to it. Right where I pointed, there was a buck bed. But it was like a secondary knoll, not on the top of the ridge, mm-hmm. just halfway down mm-hmm. and just overlooking A, access, and B, he had something else there. So whether it's a feed or a staging area where there's a bunch of, uh, well, I used to call it a scrape area, but, mm-hmm. um, but you know, there's multiple reasons he's bedding there. But those points up here, it's not random like what you're talking about down in Alabama. Uh, It's
0: very strategic where they're betting. Yes. And
3: Mm -hmm. 90% of the time, it's overlooking where most of their threats are coming from or where the does are at. So
0: let me ask you this when it comes to give guys, because my goal with this episode is to give guys like in the Appalachian Mountain areas or just more mountainous areas understand if they have opportunities to hunt early season, especially if you're trying to find some of this stuff. Like, you know, you're talking about scrapes and stuff there, but. These bucks, it seems like, and tell me if I'm wrong. A lot of these bucks are betting no matter the time of the season with a visual advantage, looking downhill. Like they don't care about what's above them. It's always about focusing on downhill.
3: Absolutely. Yes. And the and the seven pointer I shot uh, last year, the one that stood mm-hmm. up out of his bed, mm-hmm. that was using that same bed all the time. He was watching that trail downhill. But what was up behind him? Seventy five yards. area. Yeah, a, yeah. a primary
2: scrape. area. Yeah, the yeah. best one in the area. The best one in the area. That's where yeah. I had my camera. That's why I was yeah. pointing up there when he stood up.
3: Yeah, So he had, there was multiple reasons he was betting right there on that little knoll. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in these mountain areas, it's almost always on a little flat spot on the side of a hill, a flat spot in a bowl, like you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, uh, where that you're talking about that bucket, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: um,
3: that 13 pointer I shot, that was kind of a flat spot in a bowl, but it was next kind of adjacent to a feeding area, mm-hmm. private land below him, public land ab- access above him. Um, so it was kind of opposite of your Ohio scenario but there were just it wasn't just one he's just not picking a random knoll and setting there there's plenty of random knolls in the woods he's got multiple reasons to be better on that knoll
2: right and we'll take like an early season hunt mm mm-hmm. we'll take the area that we've decided we're going to go look at and we will spend time picking every one of those spots out that we think might be potentially good and might hold things that would hold a deer there and we'll mark them on our GPS from the comfort of our own home. And then we'll just ease around until we find something good mm-hmm. at one of those spots. And, and if we don't, we'll move on to a different area.
0: Yeah. But it almost seems like, cause you're talking about scouting, talking for early season success, you're talking like scouting in season. Like you're trying to find the most recent sign right then and there and then hunt it. Are you, are you guys worried about if you're doing that and you're talking about like strategically scouting, which if I had to guess, truly targeting those secondary ridge points, like if you're going to go out scouting, Let's find an access point. Let's check all the secondary ridge points, those knolls around the access point, and then let's start working down one of those ridges and just keep hitting the tips of them. Is that kind of the primary? If you're going to look at one of those secondary ridge points, you know, for beds, especially talking early season, are you going to look predominantly at the whole, t- just the tip of that secondary ridge or the uh, point or that knoll? Or are you going to walk the whole edge all the way around it?
3: Well, I, I'll usually walk. If I don't find it where we first expect to find mm-hmm. it, I'll walk the whole thing. Okay. But usually it's not that. You know what? Maximum of fifty yards, and it's not right. that big. Because
0: so, um, we're talking small. That's that's another thing I want to talk about. These aren't he- these aren't big secondary ridge points like you might see in some other areas. It was are like this slight, subtle knolls popping. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. maybe
3: twenty yards yeah. across that's most cool. of them. Mm, okay. uh, but the other thing we didn't talk about <laughs> that I meant to mention earlier. If if the first thing obviously I check is over the parking, and we're not just the parking, but the access where most people go in, and then those points, but also those points on the edges. So. Not just train feature edge, but, or a a change in like timber Mm -hmm. uh, habitat, but the edges of public and private. I mean, that's some of our biggest deer. It's like the private guys push all the way back to the edge. The public guys push all the way back to the edge, but nobody ever walks on that point right on the edge of the line. Mm -hmm. And that's where that buck feels most comfortable. And some of the biggest deer we've ever seen have come right off the edge of public and private, which that gets you into a whole nother. Realm there, you can really anger some people if you get too close to the private line. But
0: absolutely, but we've talked about that a lot is the idea of like some of those best habitat edges are on the border of public and private because public they may be cutting, private they may not, private may have ag, public does not. Like you have a hard line a lot of times right then and there, especially in some of these areas like we're talking about here, especially like you're talking like national forest or big state forest or something. A lot of times it's not like a ton of logging going on there. There may be, but like on the private, especially if the private's down low, there's a good chance to have pasture, ag, something, green fields, whatever. And you have that hard break line, which is like definite, like guaranteed food source. Of course you got oaks and everything potentially up in the actual, you know, higher elevations, but it's like, you know, that's a definite food source. Like you just tell them that they're definitely going to go down there at some point tonight, like without a doubt and just figure out again, like you said, like where is that closest spot where that buck can get down there or that safest place to travel. If it's a wide open Ridge, I'm guessing, between the secondary ridge points going down to that private, maybe he's not going to go down there, but you gave an example earlier, that thicker side, that might be the backside of that ridge. He's swinging down, circling around the ridge point and then dropping into the, uh, dropping into the private Mm -hmm. way after dark, just wherever he's got the most cover based off that situation. And
2: another thing about the points, um, they may not be bedding there on those secondary points, but there's, there's, if they're bedding somewhere near it, there's usually some good sign right there on those points. And you might find a lot of good sign there and there not be beds there and they're probably just bedded off onto the steepness on, you know, a hundred yards away from that point, 150 yards away from that point on the steep stuff where there's a flat where an old tree is falling over or whatever on the side of the hill where usually he can see downhill a long way, but he's got some cover, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's not necessarily that they're all bedding right there on those secondary points. But there may be a lot of, there's always at least a lot of sign on those points or around those points if a a deer is bedded in that area within, you know, range of daylight movement, you know.
0: So so when it comes back to like that early season, you know, hunting and kind of like the bed is like, especially what we're talking about in mountain country here, like that's going to be like the most prominent thing, like food's great. But if you can find where that bed is, and you know exactly potentially how he's getting down there, then you're like way more in the game than just find the food source alone. Right, or the just super
2: fresh sh- bed where you know without a doubt that's where he's at right now. You know, and that's going to be but, from
0: droppings in there. It's going to be or droppings around it. It's going to be fresh rubs around it. Going right. to be the smell, the wore
2: outness of the bed, how much hairs in it. You know, do, uh, do you
0: do you play off effect if you don't know? Like you're not running trail cameras, you just find a bed. Is there anything that you're telling, like, in, you're running through your mind earlier? She's like, this may be, like, a quality book that I want to shoot versus maybe, like, a younger deer. Is there anything that, like, you can kind of look at? I mean, other than, I guess, finding, like, a big track. Is there anything that kind of gives you a character? Besides big this? tracks, uh, you know, a lot of rubs
2: you can tell were made and, by smaller deer. Rubs uh, from
3: years past and in the yeah, same bed. Yeah, that's biggie. Mm-hmm. And like then can, a
2: lot of, you know, the stuff on the bases. You know, a lot of times you can tell with a big gnarly deer that's got stuff on the bases. You know, you know, <laughs> you know, there's no doubt whatsoever that that it's probably something you want to shoot, mm-hmm. you know,
0: if it's got stickers coming off the bases, you know. That, our, one of our buddies, Paul Puchero, has been on the podcast a few times. He's up in Jersey. hunts Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York. He talks about that, like finding a rub. He's a big – he rubs play a huge factor in finding, locating, like these bucks kind of territorial ranges and kind of where they like to travel and that he uses that to his advantage on public. But that's the one thing he talks about. It's like, not all rubs are created equal. And one thing he says, and he talks about, and I've heard more people talk about this, like what you just mentioned, a lot of those older deer are going to have more gnarly bases. Like they're going to have more birds and stuff. And that's going to really tear that rub. But It's not going to be a clean rub. It's going to have deep gouges. It's going to have that shredded bark on some of those different types of trees. Like when I was in Iowa, mostly all of those deer have like gnarly bases. Because every rub I found, it was just, um, they, it looks like you took like a like a freaking pitchfork to it and just was shredding it. I mean, looked like, yeah, it was crazy. Like, looks like pulled pork on a tree. That's that's the best way to shred (laughs) it. That's a good description. And, uh, but it's like, if you find characteristics like that, like you said, it could be an older buck, especially if that's a a common characteristic. Because I've been other places, like in Alabama, I have a five and a half year old buck, and he's got slick bases. Like, he just doesn't have that gnarliness. Mm -hmm. So, that you got to play a factor in that, too, like where you're at. Like, you know, some of those big bucks are having those gnarly bases based off what you've killed or what your buddies have killed or whoever's killed. That's a good factor to definitely pay attention to in and around those areas.
3: Yeah. I'd like to add to that the. Probably the thing that indicates to me that it's an older buck here more often than the gnarly bases is that they've ripped the top out of the rhododendron bushes. Right. Like they love to do that. They'll take a little three foot high, four foot high rhododendron bush, twist just it up snap and snap it off. It. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll do that early season. So you walk up on the bed and you know that's not a fork horn or a paddle horn or whatever they like to call them <laughs> these days.
2: Yeah, the <laughs> so. big ones around here and in Virginia consistently do that with the laurel, mm-hmm. you know. And you find that early season where it's just ripped up and ripped off the whole top of the plant and you know it's probably decent deer.
0: Now, what is y'all's what is y'all's takes on especially again, we're talking early season here, like how does scrapes play a factor, especially when they're starting to open the scrapes up? I mean, does that ever play a factor for a potential site location or are you always targeting that bed? Like, not maybe not sitting on the bed, but targeting that exit trail potentially.
2: The 13 pointer he killed two years ago, we didn't find the beds till after we killed the deer. Mm-hmm. The beds were 20 yards away, but it was the scrape that truly made him. I think your words were I'm dropping my pen right here. But right. there was so much fresh urine in that early season scrape right there. I knew he was, was a bedded no-brainer. close, right.
3: uh, A, because. It was absolutely the best feed in the area. Mm-hmm. There was so much. The, the ground, you hear people talk about it. Mm-hmm. It looks like a tiller's been through there. It was there. red well, oaks, that, right? It was red oaks. Yeah. And they, I mean, he had tilled the ground up. There was fresh buck scat. Wasn't um, any red
2: oaks anywhere else. There was except none. Except where, where I was going. And there was very few where I was going. And then they
3: had just been tearing up this scrape, not uh, 10 yards from where the food was. And it was fresh. I mean, you could tell they were doing it every single day. And to be honest, I've not seen that a ton in the mountains mm-hmm. around here. Uh, so when I saw that that day, I just knew. I knew that was that was where to hunt. Yeah. Uh, I've got to ask, have y'all been
0: back to that spot since?
3: One time he went once and I went once. I killed uh, a
0: doe right there in that spot uh, two years ago. Any yeah. similar sign? I mean, you um, haven't been within two there years. There was
2: zero buck sign there. Mm-hmm. Th- the same amount of doe sign and the the O's Oaks were dropping again when I was there. No, it, it was last year, not. Not not 2020. And I don't think like, the
3: scrape was open anymore.
2: No, the scrape wasn't there, but... The-, the scrape was there.
3: Those bucks were making that. The bucks that were bedding just around the corner, mm-hmm. uh, they were making... I think they were the ones that were responsible for the scrape. Yeah. But they were, you know, and there was lots of little shredded trees in there the year I killed the buck. Um, but I scared, when I shot that buck, the, the, the bigger buck that was with it that I could not get a shot at because he was sitting there smelling the, my bottom wild edge step while I shot his buddy. Um, he looked pretty upset when he With ran off. With the bigger off.
0: buck?
2: Yeah, he was. Yeah, we didn't tell many people I didn't people tell that. many people
3: that <laughs> because <laughs> and he's not around anymore. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I don't have to worry about anybody sneaking in there and trying to kill him. It was a pretty big buck. That I shot,
0: yeah, oh yeah, yeah. that's he was, a big deer. <laughs> He was
3: small compared to the one that was with him.
0: Oh, I, actually, I, I think I remember you telling me about that. I, I think I told yeah, you off air. I, I think y'all did. Yeah. Damn, yeah, that's crazy.
3: I just couldn't get a shot at him. Yeah. He was at the base wow. of the tree and he was smelling you know, the wild edge. So, it's like, of, do
0: I want a chance at one deer, or do I like? Oh, this is a little more for sure shot. It's like, what you want to, you know? Yeah, weigh that odds oh, real quick. <laughs> well, I remember Adam
2: saying that you know it was right there that first day at first light, you know, and if he had been filming camera probably wouldn't even been picking up the Mm -hmm. deer very good. But he said I wasn't even interested in the buck I shot. He was like I was just wanting to shoot that one, but he when he busted me, the other one still hadn't busted me. So he swung and shot and I quote the smaller one. Well he was doing the the big buck was smelling my wild edge step strap and he was doing
3: the old head bob Mm. up and down. So I knew it was getting ready to bust. So and I already had it pulled back. So I was in the saddle and I just literally rotated about you know, yeah. twenty degrees and pop the other one.
0: Okay, I gotta ask: Did y'all tape that deer?
3: Tape it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we did when we. I think it was around like what one fifty one or one fifty one. That's the that. smaller deer. Yeah, yeah that was just, just put that out for yeah. the podcast. that's the
2: smaller deer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for North yeah. Carolina, that's that's pretty good. But yeah. there's some
3: private land around there, and we talked to some of these old timers mm-hmm. that had hunted there for years, and they said there've been several one eighties killed in there. So it was it was definitely. It was definitely an option, you know, they, there could be one that big. And I think there's actually one in the books that's a, that'll go around 180 that was from. It was over 180. About a half a mile yeah. from there. So,
0: Well, I want to kind of get back to this just a little, again, just kind of get back to this topic because I find it very interesting. What else, what else do y'all feel is like factors for, again, that early success? You got to have, I know you talked about MRS, most recent sign, um, you know, that's a factor. Trying to find that bed. It's like, we're talking, again, mountains here. Find that bed because that's going to tell you more. Or maybe you find a community scrape, primary scrape, close to it. This has got the sign that you just got to sit it. But try to find the bed if potential and then try to figure out whether you can set up on the bed if it makes sense or if you got to hunt an exit trail. Because sometimes you find a bed location, like there's no way to hunt it. He's bedded up right. against a bluff you, or, you know, a rock ledge, you know, that outcrop. There's, there's no way to hunt Surrounded
2: it. Surrounded by rhododendron.
0: Yeah, it's You like, can't it, crawl through. It's like, nope, so we're going to hunt the edge and you got to play, you know, you know, you know test the waters on what potentially could be done there. But what else is kind of a factor for you guys, especially for like that early season success we're talking, you know, September going into maybe early October. Is there anything else that we're kind of missing in regards to like some of those factors?
3: Yeah. That we're always calling each other when that first real temperature drop hits that first real cold front where Mm -hmm. it, it drops 20 degrees overnight. And that usually happens in late September, early October. I believe why we went that that's why we went. Yep. That's when I killed the 13. Um, But that that's always good that mm-hmm. first one
0: do you feel let me ask you that from an early season standpoint do you feel like that makes the deer stay out even longer so you have a better chance of hunting the bed I feel like that
3: buck would have been back in his bed an hour and a half earlier uh he's, he was just out playing because it felt good and it cost him
0: yep that's exactly what I thought too I was like man that makes a lot because I didn't know that about the colder weather but I mean as in with that specific hunt but that makes a lot more sense too Cold front comes in, hey, they're going to be feeding a whole lot more. They're going to be out there, and you might have that better chance of getting in on that bed and killing him during daylight coming back to that bed or right at daybreak. Yeah. Because that
2: same morning, the buck I was that I was on, you know, he's probably a three-year-old buck. He wasn't as old as the, the ones Adam was on. He came into bed at 5 o'clock. He came in early. He did the right thing, you know, played it safe. The other two, you know, you had that cold weather. It feels good, you know. Mm-hmm. They stayed out just a little too long.
3: Well, and two weeks right. later, we we took a, our first Virginia hunt of the year, mm-hmm. and we set up overbuck beds, and we had same scenario play out, and they came back in before daylight. It wasn't as good a cold front, um, and they came. They were, I think, they were back in the bed by five thirty. I had one bed down in front of me, but he smelled me before daylight.
0: Right. that. Well, he. Let me ask you both of y'all this because I'm I'm getting them super interested with this. Given all factors the same, other than temperature. You find this bed, say it's like, you know, first week of season, okay? food. Take food out of the question and everything, but you find the bed, you know that he's traveling, say, down in elevation to the food. Would you hunt that if, say, the the weather's staying stagnant, I don't know what y'all's average, average temperature is and like, rain consideration. Would you hunt it maybe, like, the first week or two, knowing it's there? Or would you wait, hey, hey, there's pre- predicting to have a cold front 10 days from now, where it's going to drop potentially 15, 20 degrees. Would you wait that long potentially go sit it? Or would you go try to sit it early? If I thought
2: there was a chance that I could sit it without getting busted before daylight, I'd do it before the cold front. And Heath Heath has more time off to hunt
3: during season than me. I'm I'm going to go when I can get off. Right, and And then we
2: kind of time it with the cold front, you know.
0: Yeah, we try to. Now, what about this? So, another thing, and I I can't believe I just now realized this. I mean, I've realized this, but now it's like really clicking. We're not talking anything about afternoon hunts right we're talking morning hunts
2: all morning it's rare that we set up near bed in the afternoon well I, I'm a,
0: I know that i mean that makes plenty of sense too but it's like do you, if y'all are looking at success rates talking say september here do you feel like you have a higher chance in that morning hunt versus an afternoon hunt again mm-hmm. just okay well you're shaking your head so I mean, yes so i mean what's your take on that because a lot of guys well, are like i'm only gonna hunt evenings early season
2: i am gambling but i'm getting right on top of where i where i need to be and if he don't smell me. He's definitely going to be there when daylight comes. If he comes in, he lays down. He's going to be there after daylight comes. I know I'm going to have be in the ball game in the afternoon. You know, I know there's a chance he might lay there till dark, and I can't get what. But usually, within a hundred yards of him, hundred yards is if you're lucky. You or know? he,
3: do, or he doesn't go the same way right. the night before. He doesn't leave the bed right. the same way. So you know he's – early season, He's gonna he, he's he got that bed and he's right. coming back to it. Uh, y- yeah, you're probably more likely to get busted than somebody that's being you know, reserved and sitting back and doing an evening hunt, but we don't stay in an area very long. We just hop from one place to the next. So if we burn one out, which we usually do, we, mm-hmm. we might get busted 10 times for every one we shoot, but it's exciting and we're just flopping around. We're going to the next area. We're moving on to the next area. So for us, it works better.
0: Yeah. Then, l- let me Let me ask this then. And that, again, that makes a lot of sense too, because again, a lot of guys like, man, I'm just going to hunt evenings, man. I don't, you know, hear a lot of the big time hunters, you know, these guys, a lot of the times on private land, but like, man, I don't hunt mornings until October 25th and then I'll start hunting mornings, you know, but they're, you know, they only have maybe, I mean, they got a couple thousand acres to hunt against private land, but that's all they got. Instead of you guys got tens of thousands, if not millions of acres to jump around from and, or hundreds of thousands, especially, um. But it makes more sense as well if you are trying to be – I wish Michael Pike was here. He'd be drooling over this conversation because he loves being super aggressive early season. But go – I mean, balls to the wall, all in. If you screw it up, fine. Let's go find another deer. But you I, I now looking at this conversation, especially if you understand how to set up correctly based off the thermals, your entrance routes, and how that buck's potentially coming back to that bed, it's a I say an even more even chance of you potentially killing that deer in a morning hunt in the afternoon hunt, like you said, he might have four or five exit trails. Right. Well, he might only have one or two entrance trails coming back to that, and that's one thing. I guess when you're scouting it, you got to learn all that right then. and There, take into your memory, write notes down, whatever you got to do, so you know exactly how you need to get in there cleanly, potentially, and have potentially a higher odds of success mm-hmm. hunt versus sitting in the evening and hoping he comes out one of four you know trails. Right. And there's uh, there's usually only one or two
2: good ways to access in the areas that we hunt. You know, there's it's just not it's not a million ways to access so steep. Right. So that's another reason we try to go in in the mornings and do it. You know, you know, that's where he's going, you know, and and you're going to cross some trails. I mean, you're gambling going in there on him and it's just, it makes more sense to me than, than going in in the evening time and, and, <laughs> and, and trying to guess exactly which way he's going to head out. You know, you know where he's going to be in the morning and, uh, you just take, you gamble and go in the best way that you can, you know, mm-hmm. there isn't usually never a great way to get in there without, you know, there's always a 30% chance you're going to get busted before he ever gets to you.
0: Or one like you know? doe crosses, you know, right. where you, you walk want in expecting. and you're like, yeah. well, crap, you know, well, there, there goes that, yeah. you know, she blows. Which I'll say bring up as well. I've now not, if a deer blows, it's not, to me, it's not the end of the hunt. It's like, okay, like deer blow all the freaking time. I've seen deer blowing at me or blowing at something else and watching deer a hundred yards away on the other side of this creek drainage like just feeling like they don't care. It's right. It it was just a natural noise. It's like, for some reason, it's not that big of a deal. But then I've been on, and this is talking public, then I've gone on private land like in a greenfield, which is totally different from being in the timber. And the timber, I feel like those deer are so much more kind of. They feel more protected. They're not so mm-hmm. exposed, especially if it's not super open timber. In a greenfield, that deer blows. Now, it's, it's game over in a greenfield. They're all getting out of there. They want to get back in the cover. But it's like something about being in the woods. The deer blows. It's not the end of the world.
2: Right. You always, in your mind, you think, oh, yeah, they, they're on to me. That deer's blowing at me. Somehow the wind has switched and mm-hmm. it's blowing at me. But you know, most of the time they're blowing at each other or they're blowing at a coyote. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's a, a hundred different reasons deer might blow at each other. You know? They, their social interactions are still a little bit of a mystery to us
3: right know. one might be a Democrat
2: the other a Republican <laughs> right and there <laughs> they are blowing at each other yeah. before daylight and you think they're blowing at you
0: my you uncle know. actually talked about this is an episode well I don't know if this episode is going to drop but one of the episodes we did uh, a while back with my uncle uh, we were down at our family farm talking about this his first deer he ever shot with a bow he was like in mid 20s uh, early 20s and it was a spike and it was on a little lease they had and it was this one green field it had one little tree it was the only little tree eight inch diameter tree nine inch diameter tree he could climb and only get up eight ten feet and he actually i guess decided why he was in the stand that afternoon that he was gonna blow just you know like did that did it and the buck came and he shot the buck and he's like and he's always talked about like early season especially like if you're talking like with does and stuff trying to kill a doe about blowing and they just like run to you like, okay, well, what's going on? What's going on? You know, and just like actually implementing that. So not saying I wouldn't do that with a buck, but uh, you know, talking to mature buck, but anyways, it's it's kind of funny. Again, I don't fear. I don't think it scares as many deer as it, as people think it does. Right. Uh, Especially now I'll say this, if you bump a doe, especially a doe or a young buck and he goes blowing, running through that bedding cover away from you, that's a different story if it's a standing there blowing, that's one thing, but if it runs through that bedding cover blowing, oh, uh, you know, yeah, that bug probably ain't coming back. It's not coming near. ain't coming towards yeah. me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Done that too many times. I definitely know that doesn't work. Um, but, uh, am I, are we missing anything else on this early season topic?
2: Uh, oh yes. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to say, and this, this hunt just comes to mind and, um, because I've not had many like this, but the idea just came to me. Um, this was uh, 2019. It was October 17th. You know, um, in early September, I had gone uh, the week before bow season opened up and I was looking at a new area in Virginia. And I run a buck off a secondary point. Well, I just marked it on my GPS. There were no fresh rubs there. but There were three or four uh, beds around that point, And there were lots of historical rubs right there on that around those beds and i thought okay it's probably pretty good buck i saw the tracks where Mm -hmm. i run him off i was like yeah definitely a buck so we go back in and we go to this area and we're just we're going in that first day to look for sign Uh, adam never been there before and i'd only been there to scout that one time (laughs) and uh, we just want to try a new area out we go in there and we're looking up the ridge next the secondary ridge next to it and the wind's blowing 30 miles an hour and it's switching back and forth like crazy and we're looking for red oaks we get up on this ridge and we're pretty good ways away from the truck. And I just, it just came to me. I was like, Adam, uh, I know where a buck was bedded a month ago. I guarantee you he is still, it's October 17th. I guarantee you he is still bedding right there right now. In this wind, let's sneak up the mountain above him and try to come down on him from above. Cause he's going to be looking downhill most likely uh, right there, you know, within 50 yards of where, where I run him off. And with this wind switching like this and blowing really heavy, we, we might just be able to catch him in his bed. And so we like, we, we walked as fast as we could, uh, all the way up the mountain. We, we circled like a half mile.
3: I tracked it on my GPS. It was a mile around. Around. To get above that deer.
2: It was a pretty hard walk, but we, we weren't worried about making noise (laughs) or anything. You know, we, we walk all the way up around there. And then I looked at my GPS and when we got within a hundred yards of that deer, we started stalking and sneaking and he cut the camera on and he followed me. Well, we get down within 40 yards of where I've run that, that deer off and we hadn't seen him yet, but we're like Indian stepping down Mm -hmm. through there, you know, and uh, we're used to walking together. So we're pretty good together. You know, we, we sound like a deer when we're walking together. We're standing, cameraman's right on the back of the other guy. You, you got four feet. You sound like a deer if they even hear you, you Mm -hmm. know, and the wind has been in our favor up until that point. Well, at the same time, we feel. The wind switch and hit the back of our neck. And that's, you know, we're looking towards that deer where he's supposed to be, where we think he's going to be. The wind hits the back of our neck and that deer moves his head and Adam sees him. I don't see him yet. And then he panics and he stands up and then I see him, you know, but Adam, as soon as he moved his head, Adam grabbed my shoulder. and was like, don't move. There he is. You know, and he stands up. And the wind has been switching so badly, like it always does in Virginia. Anybody that hunts Virginia can can relate to this. Uh that wind was switching so badly and so frequently that buck was panicking and didn't he knew he smelled us, but he didn't know which way we were. So instead of getting up and running off from us, he gets up and tries to sneak back up the mountain by us. That's coming where we came from. Mm-hmm. And he comes by me and he's just moving a little. I just lost that buck a month before on camera. And I didn't want to lose another deer with a bow, especially not in one season. So I let him go and he runs by us. And we did put that one on YouTube, but. It was a little a,
3: small mountain laurel bush yeah, in, in your one little shot area. Yeah. That's the reason you didn't take the shot.
2: But I was thinking outside the box that day. I had, it was middle of October. I knew, well, most likely he's still there. Mm-hmm. It's October 17th. Most likely he's still there where I ran him off a month ago. And the wind was really crazy and, and switching around and blowing 30, 40 mile an hour. And I thought, well, maybe this will work. And, you know, having GPS, you know, I knew exactly, you know, it's thick area. Without that GPS, we'd have probably busted him before we got up. You know, we'd have went too far and, and got busted. But with the GPS, I knew when to slow down and when to start looking for him. You know, I knew, okay, I was within a hundred yards. So that was one of those random situations that's only happened one time, but it did work that one time. And I was thinking outside the box that day and it worked, it did work for me and I could have shot if I'd have wanted to 20 yards broadside, but I I just didn't want to take the shot. But Mm -hmm. he ended up being a three-year-old 10 pointer, you know, 120 inch deer or whatever, but a a great hunt that made the trip, you know, it was fun. And, and I'll never overlook that opportunity again. If I ever think I can recreate that stalk, you know?
0: Absolutely. Well, i'll say this that'll kind of wrap up kind of the early season aspect because i want to do a second part with you guys about um you know not being afraid to bump up a deer and then use that knowledge even for for that year and maybe coming back to them a couple of days or a week later or a month later or use that knowledge for potentially the next year go in there and try to have success and get opportunities at those deer and not i guess look at the aspect of oh i'll bump deer, that's it let's leave instead of Having that mindset, like, oh, I bumped a buck here. He was bedded here, especially if he's bedded. Now, if he's walking, it's different, but if he's bedded, put that into the memory bank, mark it on the map, and maybe come back to it a little bit later. That's gonna be a perfect segue for the next episode.
1: Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a, a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, we talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there, and you you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.